Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome back to the Lights Up Podcast. My name is Mike Davis. Along with me, as always, Miguel Iterate. Miguel, we are joined by Jamie Varner. Jamie, appreciate you being here. Thanks, guys. All right. So, Jamie, let's talk about your pedigree, because when you came into mixed martial arts, it was usually everybody was kind of a one trick pony. And that one trick either you know got them so far. But you came in with both wrestling and boxing like you had more tools than most. Yeah, um, that was like I was kind of a part of that first wave of guys that could do multiple things. Um, I would say like Jens Pulver was probably like the first like the the, the original that could wrestle at D1, division one wrestling i think he wrestled in junior college and he went to boise state after that and then he was obviously a great boxer as well um, he was actually one of the guys i really looked up to uh growing up because he was he was that little guy that people counted out and then when he beat bj penn um it was it was really cool and he's a wrestler boxer um but yeah man I, I was kind of a part of that 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 initial wave and i was really lucky the university that I wrestled at, um, I did junior college first because um, I was just an idiot. I had a 2.0 GPA in high school. So I, I only went to I went to school to play sports. Um, so C's got degrees. I thought like, you know, like everybody else, you see these football players on national TV, they can barely speak. So I'm thinking like, dude, I, I'm definitely going to college if you're a good enough athlete. But that's only for like basketball and football that they make those kinds of uh, exceptions for. But for wrestling... Um, unfortunately I, I didn't have any scholarships and, um, I had to walk onto a junior college, but after that, I, I ended up becoming a Juco all American. I took second in nationals my sophomore year, and then I got a full ride to Lock Haven university of Pennsylvania and Lock Haven wait, university. What about high school? How did you do in high school? High school? I was a state runner up in wrestling. Okay. Okay. I was actually more of a swimmer in high school, dude. I was a four time state placer, uh, four time state qualifier, for swimming, I was a hunter backstroker. Um, that was my main. I would swim the 200 IM as well, but I was the 50 back in the in the relay, the hunter backstroker. I took eighth in state my senior year. Like I, I, I had scholarship wow. for swimming. I was going to go to University of Evansville in Indiana, but my 2.0 GPA <laughs> caused me to lose that scholarship opportunity. So that's why I had to walk on to to um, a junior college for wrestling. Yeah, wrestling was only to get myself stronger for for. Uh, for swimming, to be honest with you, really? Have you, have, you yeah. ever, uh, have you ever been to Evansville? I have not. I have not. I've heard. I've heard that it's a small town, but I heard it's not bad. Okay, uh, I've, I've done a bunch of shows there. It's, it's okay. You probably did better where, where in, in Arizona. Yeah, no matter where you went, it's probably better. <laughs> yeah, I heard the air quality is pretty bad. Isn't there like coal mines or something like that around there? Yeah, it's it's a blue collar town on the border with Kentucky. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've never, never been there, but Lock Haven had a wrestling team and a boxing team. So I think oh. that's kind of where my, my skills really grew. Um, during my senior year, like right before my senior year in high school, I started training MMA. I met with a guy that like was a purple belt in jujitsu and he's running classes at this gym about two miles from my house. And then once a week he would have a Muay Thai guy come in on Saturdays and do like a two hour class. And there will only be like two or three of us in there. So I was getting like essentially one-on-one Muay Thai training and boxing training 
while I was in high school. So I kind of had a little bit of knowledge of striking, um, but it was when I got to Lock Haven that I really refined my skills. And I, I actually became a national champ in, in boxing at Lock Haven. So it was, it was awesome. Is that in PA? Yeah. Yeah. Central Pennsylvania, just outside Williamsport. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, your, your hands were, were no joke. And it, it seemed as if like you came from a wrestling boxing background, but it's kind of surprising that you took to it so quick, you know, truth be told, but how about your first fight, March 27, 2003, Roland Saria is the promoter. You fight Carlos Ortega out of Brasa Academy. Um, did you know that how, how important MMA would be in your life at this point? No, dude. I, um, I was a senior in high school. Senior. I was in high school during that time. I had about 500 kids because I remember my sophomore year of high school, the, the toughest guy in school that everybody thought was the toughest guy in school, he was supposed to fight and rage in the cage. And he backed out last minute because he got scared. He's like, oh, man, these guys are real fighters. Like. So he backed out. And I remember hearing him say this. I'm like, dude, it's like a wrestling match where you get to punch people. And there's been so many times I wanted to punch guys on the mat. I'm like, I'm going to do that someday. Just to say I did it because what these people thought was the toughest guy in school. And I saw that he was a coward and like didn't do it. I'm like, I'll do that. So I had already had it in my mind that I was going to fight someday. I told my parents. I told like my coworkers. <laughs> I was a lifeguard during the summer. I'm like, I'm fighting. No one believed me. But I got an opportunity um, and I was trained as right after wrestling my senior year. I had just taken second. I went right into wrestling, right back into MMA training. And um, yeah, in March, I had that first fight. I think he was like four and two. Um, you know, dude, he had a KO win over Kyle Breeze. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I was a 18-year-old that didn't have a goatee that could, could connect. Barely had the hair under my armpits. And I went in there and fucked him up. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on this, but yeah, yeah I, I mean... I, I was I, I was a little kid and uh, he was a pro. I was an amateur, obviously. Uh, pros back then had to could fight amateurs. They just had to fight amateur rules, which was no closed fist on the ground. So you essentially you're just slapping the hell out of somebody on the, on the mat. But yeah, man, it was it was really crazy. Five hundred kids from my school were there. So like the last three months of high school, I was the absolute king. It was great. So <laughs> I mean, you're an 18 year old kid. You're a senior in high school. The promoter, Roland Saria, I'm sure treated you really well. No, no, <laughs> no, no, man. No, the promoters like Roland's a nice guy, but I mean, he's like candy covered poison, man. You, you know, like I nice guy up front, but um, he, he's in it for himself. And uh, like that's that's kind of promoters in general, especially back then. I like I said, I brought in like 500 people. And never once was there anything about like giving me money or whatever that even when I went pro, they offered me like a hundred dollars, like knowing like the type of pull that I had and the type of draw that I had, they offered me like a hundred dollars for my first pro fight, 200 bucks for my first pro, Here, pro let's, fight. Let's talk, let's talk about the type of pull because Roland, Roland, absolutely. When he sees an opportunity, he jumps in on it. He has you fight like two and a half weeks later on April 12, 2003 against Jesse Morang. Mm hmm. Jesse, Jesse was that was a really tough fight. Jesse was a former Division One wrestler. He was a couple of years older than me. Think um, about that. You're a senior in high school when he throws you up against a D1 wrestler. I, I said yes to the fight, man. I was I my goals shifted. Like, so my first goal was just to fight in the cage, just to say that I fought and did it. 
But then after having that success, I'm like, all right, my next goal was like, I just, I want to go pro just to say I'm a professional athlete. So that was my next goal was to go pro. And in an effort to do that, you have to fight, you know, whoever. And there wasn't, there wasn't a ton of opportunities out, out there back in the day. Like me being a wrestler and a good wrestler, um, no one like really wanted to fight good wrestlers back in the day because of, you know, the thought like it'd be boring. They're going to get held down. They can't really, you know, know, capitalize on their striking or whatever. So it was actually kind of hard for me to find fights. Um, Jesse was a guy that we were about the same size. Obviously he was a lot older than me or, you know, a little bit older than me had wrestling, but I wasn't scared. Like I, I took the fight. I ended up losing the decision. And, um, within three years I was, uh, I was whooping that dude. Like within three years, we became really good friends. We became training partners and like the, this, the tables completely shifted. It, it went from like, you know, he beat me like three years ago to where like he was my training partner and like they were having to bring multiple guys to try to wear me out. So um, but that was it. Like that loss motivated me so much. I trained so much harder. I don't think I lost again until the Hermes Franca fight. Now, what what was it like going back into school after a loss like that senior year? I did something that no one in our high school has ever done. And, um, you know, the way I lost, it wasn't like I got my butt kicked or anything. I you know the guy, he was just a better wrestler than me. He took me down. Um, I, I, I was better on the feet. Um, he took me down. I think a couple of times I may have got him down once. It just, it was, it was just a glorified wrestling match, but he, he out wrestled me and Jesse's tough, dude. He fought, um, he fought in the WC at 135 pounds and he was working a full-time job. He was a husband, a father, working a full-time job, and then fighting at an elite level. Like, he's he's he was he's actually my hero. I love that guy. Jesse obviously is at Arizona Combat Sports. Roland keeps you going again. Doesn't give you any real break in between. He gets you against Justin Nalling, where you show off some jujitsu skill. <laughs> where were you yeah. training at exactly at this point? So I was at I was training under a guy named Steve Hockley. Uh, okay. He was. He was a purple belt jujitsu. Um, he had some MMA fights, um, and then I had a couple. I had a couple kickboxers that would that were like lived in the local area that would help me out. But I was I was essentially just trained out of a karate gym. Um, this guy would rent mat space out of a karate gym, and there would be about eight to ten of us that would go in every night and do do jujitsu or do MMA training or do uh, kickboxing or whatever. Um, so I was trained under him. Uh, the Justin Nolling fight was actually a really good fight. I'm actually friends with Justin on Facebook. We were, uh, he was, uh, we were supposed to connect a couple of weeks ago, actually, when he was out here, I just was traveling for work, but, um, he was a Marine. He's like six, two, six, three, um, Marine badass decorated, uh, kickboxer wore the badass kickboxers, you know, uh, Muay Thai shorts. Um, the crowd was definitely, um, on his side, obviously being, being a Patriot and a veteran and, all that type of stuff. Um, I, I had immense respect for him, but I was also scared, man. He uh, he was he was bigger than me, like a lot bigger than me. I think he outweighed me by like ten or fifteen pounds. Um, he was a lot taller than me. I never fought anybody that tall. Nowhere have I fought in like a grown ass man. He was a grown ass man. Um, you know, like at least at least Carlos Ortega. Like, he was like shorter than me. Like he was a man, but he was shorter than me. He didn't like, he wasn't like a real imposing looking figure, like not, wasn't super Jack. He, he, he was in good shape. I mean, he was a fighter. He had a winning record. He beat Kyle Breeze, right? Like Kyle Breeze Absolutely. was no chump back then. 
but um, Justin Nolan was, I, I was actually nervous about that one. I was, I was a little scared. Um, I think he, I think he knocked somebody out or beat the hell out of somebody right before. So I knew, I knew who he was. Um, but yeah, man, the game plan was like, you, you, you don't fight a shark in the ocean. You pull that motherfucker up onto the beach and you make him, you make that shark fight you on the beach. And so I took his ass down and he gave me one of those long ass arms. And that was, that was a wrap. Yeah. You know, Roland has done so many events in Arizona and the guys that we've talked to, uh, we had Drew Ficken on, Seth Baczynski, uh, Joe Riggs as well. All love of those them, guys. All of them have classic Roland stories. Oh, God, I, I can't tell you guys stories because the, the things that I uh, know of him, I don't want it to be, they, they'd be pretty damning if I tell you some of the stories. So the, the things I can say is Roland likes to party. And um, there, there he he partied at all times. All didn't matter if he was working or not working. Rolling like the party, and um, he ultimately he gave me an opportunity. And I think BJ cool. Penn says it says it bet best. The MMA or MMA UFC. I, he said his quote was like the UFC is just an opportunity. Um, I'll take it. I'll take it one step further. I think MMA is an opportunity. I think every promoter, every promotion that you fight on is an opportunity. And he gave me an opportunity, man. And so I'm really grateful for him. Like people can talk shit, say what they want. Um, I underpaid, whatever. Like he gave us all an opportunity. All those guys that you mentioned without Roland Saria, their pathway to the UFC would have been a lot longer. So um, I'm grateful for him. That, that's a good yeah, take. I, and I appreciate I that in terms of you know, like positivity and stuff like that. Um, so let's not blame Roland. Let's let's you're an 18 year old kid, you've got some promise, you've got some talent. There's got to be somebody who offered you management, or what you know, what was going on on that end? Because at this point, you know, if you had 500 people there, you know, 10% of the ticket sales, even something like that for a kid, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, why were why did Roland not even, you know, have, have somebody asking him for that stuff? Uh, well, I guess that's that's more so on me. Um, I was young. I was 18. I didn't really know business, right? Um, my I was a I was a pure competitor. I think that time during my life, I treated it like high school wrestling because that's what that's all I knew. You know, I didn't pay. I didn't get paid to win wrestling matches. I took second in state. Nothing came came from that. So <laughs> I, I I think my mindset was just win fights, become a pro. I don't know. Then I I, I didn't really have any thoughts after that. So um, it wasn't it wasn't really in my mind. I never had a manager. It was I was just competing for for the heck of it. And it was it ended up being after like my after my freshman year in college, MMA ended up being just a, a cross training outlet for me to stay for me to stay in shape and get in shape for my next wrestling season. You know, when you, when you're in a wrestling room all the time, like you get you do get sick of it. Too much of a good thing can still be too much. So being able to pull myself out of that wrestling room being in like a different surrounding, but still, I'm still wrestling. I'm still doing grappling. I'm still doing a lot of stuff and I'm also staying in shape, but it's, it's just taking me out of the actual wrestling room. So I used MMA for cross training. Never did I think that it was going to turn into the career that it, that it ended up turning into. And um, I didn't get a manager until, until right before my UFC fight. Like I didn't, I didn't have anybody. Drew Fickett was one of my training partners in Tucson, Arizona, where I went to to Pima College. So a lot of the fights, like some of the fights that he would get, 
he would bring me out with him as his corner man. And a lot of times he was able to get me fights as well. And like, so, I mean, he was kind of like a pseudo manager training partner. He, he would just, I would like just be his tag along and I would get fights. And uh, that's like one of my fights. My first fight in Canada was because of that. I was out there, I was going to corner drew and um, they had a guy pull out and they're like, Hey, how much do you weigh? And I'm like, like, I don't know, 168 pounds, 170 pounds. They're like, Hey, will you fight that guy over there? And I, I'm like, I looked at him and he didn't look like, I mean, he was, they're like, he's like 175. Will you fight him? I'm like, or they're like, no, will you fight him for $800? I'm, I look over at him. I'm like, yes. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, let me set the table on this. So that is actually uh world freestyle fighting May 14, 2004. It's yep. in British Columbia. Drew was fighting Fabiano Holanda, who is obviously George St. Pierre's jiu-jitsu coach. And you get Garrett Davis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That was the day before. I, I I had to wear this. Is, this is a great story. So I'm going there. I, I'm only there to be his corner man and training partner. So I brought like just an extra change of clothes, right? Pads, tie pads. No, I didn't bring any gear for myself. No. So I get there. They tell me this shit. I have to wear Drew's cup. I have to wear <laughs> Drew's shorts. I had to wear fucking Drew's mouthpiece. How fucking gross is that? So I went first because I was early on the card. So I, I got to soil the cup. I got to soil the shorts. And I wore a mouthpiece that didn't fit my mouth. And I had to take all that stuff off, give it to him. Luckily, the fight didn't last that long. But nevertheless, it was still sweaty. So he had to put on my <laughs> jock strap. My fight shorts ever sweaty, and then the mouthpiece I was covered in my spit. I bet you're glad you're on the undercard. I mean, if you, if you went after him. <laughs> so it was, yeah, go ahead. So with that fight, Drew, if you listen to this podcast, we obviously have told a million Drew stories. Drew's out of his freaking mind at this time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you remember picking up Drew over your shoulders after his win against Fabiana Holanda? No, not a chance. No. I thought you were picking up, yelling around, carrying around the ring, yelling, fuck jujitsu. Maybe. I don't know. I was a monster back then. Drew, <laughs> I was literally Drew's like twin. I wanted I wanted to be like Drew so bad. That's scary. I know, but I didn't know any better because he was a some of the things the things that people don't know about Drew, he is the best training partner and he is a hard worker. When that guy isn't drinking, he is so goddamn dialed in. And I like Roland Saria, Drew Fickett are probably the most influential people in my life that got me to where I got me where I was. Without Drew kicking my ass every day, he came into the Pima College wrestling room because my head, the head coach at Pima was Joe Solorio. But Joe Solorio was also Drew Fickett's high school wrestling coach when Drew won state at South Point. So they had a great connection. So Drew would come in and wrestle with us. And that's like when Drew found out that I was like in like that I did MMA, we started training together. And I just was attached to his hip, man. I, I worked out with him two, three times a day. Um, he would take me on all these trips and uh he taught me how to work, man. He taught me how to be a fighter. And I'm so grateful for that monster. But yeah, he's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we love right. him. We love him. In fact, did you take it suspended by the Athletic Commission? For a few months, July 19, yeah. 2003, after celebrating your fight. Yeah. Yeah. I think I said, uh, like, yeah, they're like, what do you, you know, what do you like? 
what are your what's your path to victory or what you know what's the reason for your success i'm like eat the pussy <laughs> walk away <laughs> it's thicket that's thicket yeah that was 100 percent thicket like i said i i do i wasn't even my own person back then i i idolized him i idolized him because he, he was a monster dude like he went out and beat george pierre's jujitsu coach doing jujitsu he out jujitsu the jujitsu guy like yeah. he he was just I mean, he beat Josh Near. He beat Koscheck. Like he was a good. Did he beat Koscheck. Think about that. Yes. He he got in his own way. That was it. He just got in his own way. But he was such a good training partner and mentor when it came to training. But everything else, he was an idiot. Yeah, yeah and the, the, the thing about it too is, is like you, you mentioned, like he liked to drink and stuff. I mean. That's the big bugaboo, right? But it never prevented him from working because he's a hard worker. Everybody says the same thing. And he was always on it. 60, 70 professional fights, too. You know what I mean? It's like crazy. And, um, and he doesn't get the respect he deserves. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I would 100% agree with that. And I, when I ended up, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into this later, but when I ended up fighting him later in my career, like it was, it was the fight, I think, that got me back into the UFC um he uh i cried man it was um i'm getting emotional thinking about it right now dude it was sad it was sad because i loved him and i uh he was his own worst enemy at that time he's sober now but at that time he was like homeless i want to say he was he was in a bad way dude and i had to separate myself from him um i was supposed to corner him for his kenny florian fight dude i am getting emotional um I was supposed to corner him for uh, his Kenny Florian fight, and I had I had to pull out. I couldn't go out there and corner him. I, I forget what what had something came up, and I and I had to bail on him, and that would that really put a um, that like kind of ended our friendship because um, I let him down, and I, uh, I I still don't forgive myself for doing that. I uh, he had my back, and because of him is the reason why I had my success. And when I fought him that night, I apologized to him for that. And that was something that I should have probably done 12 years prior. But uh, yeah, man, that was a sad night fighting him because he is, he was just a shadow of the man he used to be. And it's, uh, it's just sad, man. He, he was so fucking talented. God, he was so talented. I love that man. He was a good dude. He had a technique of always being able to get somebody's back. No matter who you were, he got your back. Mm-hmm. How difficult, I mean, how long did it take you to kind of figure out that trick of his in practice? Dude, I couldn't, man. Like, he was so good. Come on. He was, when I was training with him, um, I mean, I, if he got my back, it was, I was usually effed. Usually, man. It, the, the, the whole thing was don't get there with Drew. You know, I, I would have to get the tape and Drew was bigger than me me he was more like i mean i think he's like four or five years older than me so he he had more of a man body i was still kind of growing into becoming a man and um he he was kind of, he would definitely big brother me but dude there were there were multiple times he would get my back and then just like he wouldn't even have the rear naked he would have it over my jaw and i feel like he, would, he was gonna break my jaw and i would get so goddamn pissed because i'd have to to just like a jog you know a jog, you know Wow. You had an early fight in your career, which I thought for sure was kind of a make or break it. Like, we're going to see 
what Jamie Varner is made out of. And it was the James Upshur fight. James at the time was six and one. And, you know, you're kind of on a roll right now. What, what, what happened in that bout? I know it was a no contest. I, I couldn't find any. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, so he rolled. He went. So it was like a. It would. It was either like going to be a double disqualification or a no contest. Those options. He was going for. I was punching him in the face. I may have been throwing a couple elbows. And we're not allowed to throw elbows. I was kind of like I was chins where like you like the and um yeah I, I it was like I I was I was hitting him illegally he was going for an illegal heel hook the ref stopped the fight no contest um I wanted that fight again obviously that never happened you I mean, there's a reason with, why I went for the heel hook sorry yeah you trained with a fighter named Adlin Amagoff. Adlon. Yeah. Yeah, dude. That dude. Uh, at AMA in New Jersey. Yeah, he was a strike force badass, right? He was Russian. a strike force badass. He's in, I think he stabbed a guy to death in Russia, but he was like the first wave of like the Russian invasion in regards yeah. to like their, their high end wrestlers. Yeah. Did have you guys talked to Adlon at all or talked to anybody about me and Adlon sparring sessions? I've heard they're legendary, which is why we're bringing it up. Okay, yeah, no one wanted to, no one wanted to spar that motherfucker. No one wanted, him. <laughs> dude. I, I'm a, I'm actually gonna talk some shit. Those AMA guys were fucking pussies. Jim Miller, Dan Miller, whoever that they had another two hundred five pounder there. Um, they wouldn't like Dan. Jim Miller never sparred me. We grappled one time. I knee barred him. Never grappled with me again. Never spar with me. Um, I sparred Dan, sparred Dan a bunch, fucked him up. I had they had a 205 pounder there that was also in the UFC, fucked him up. But none of those guys wanted to go with Adlon because Adlon would throw spinning kicks. And Adlon was, dude, he was a tough ass Russian. He had Sambo, he would do judo trips and throws. But I was a dog, dude. I didn't care. I, I was a dog. I, I fair, I, especially at that time, I was kind of in no, no man's land. I gotten cut from the WEC. They didn't bring me over to the UFC. I was kind of trying to refigure myself out. I uh, I thought about I I got back into school. I went back to college because I dropped out of college my senior year to uh, to fight in the UFC. So I got into Seton Hall um, medical program. They had a a three year program to become a physician assistant. So I had all my prereqs done, and um, it was a three year program to become a physician assistant. Like you get your bachelor's in biology and then you would get you, your PA degree. And so I was out there for that. So I did a, I did a semester at Seton Hall and I was training at AMA. And yeah, like no one wanted to spar Adlon. Or if the guys that would, they would run from him and shit. And I just bit down my mouthpiece, kept my hands up, and I went after that motherfucker. And I don't know if I how many rounds I won. He, he beat me, beat me up pretty good. But, you know, he definitely remembered. He, he knew who I was, and, you know, he was, what, two weight classes above me? There's, there's actually comments on YouTube about your sparring sessions. That's how I got that question. Oh, really? Yeah. Can you elaborate? I haven't seen or heard any of that stuff. I, there's no video on it, but but when I do, I mean, obviously, the questions I'm asking, I'm not from your area. They're, they're kind of intense, like, in terms of regional. So yeah. the comments on YouTube were like, him and Adlon 
holy shit. And then people are still going, yeah, Adlon's in prison now. He's stabbed some dude to death and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, I mean, he was just a Russian gangster, man. Like, and he was legit. Dude, yeah. But he liked me, man. I earned his respect. And uh, that was, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I can't say anything. Russia's, Russia's a different place, man. I don't know what he's going on, but I'd love to see that guy again because we were, we were absolute brothers in arms in that gym, man. We, we could depend on only each other. We knew that when we went, when we sparred, that we, it was going to be an absolute war. It was not going to be easy for him. And obviously I knew it wasn't going to be easy for me, but um, yeah, man, they were, they were epic battles. And I, I wouldn't, I would go with him multiple rounds in a row. Like, cause again, nobody wanted to go with him. And I'd spar Brian McLaughlin a couple of times, but like, it seemed like every time I hit him, dude, that guy would just drop. So I like, I was like, I really didn't have very many sparring partners there. Um, so it just, he was, he was just the man. He, and he made me so much better, so much tougher. Cause I got to see like spinning shit, which ended up helping me out. What a year and a half later, when I fight Edson Barbosa, I had Adlon throwing spinning shit at me all the time. So I learned to kind of circle away from that, set up my right hand off the of kicks and stuff, or close the distance when they look to spin. So Adlon actually played like a pivotal role in my life. It just didn't like, like come into fruition until that, that fight with Edson. Well, let, let's talk about Barboza. You were, he was a monster favorite in that bout. Go ahead. Barboza was a monster favorite in that bout. You finished him. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought I thought uh, my guy over here was going to ask a question. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, he was. Dude, he just kicked Terry Edom's head off in the fight before. He just came off a knockout of the year. Um, I forget he who he was supposed to you. fight. He's been with yeah. you. He still might be with them. So yeah, that's a great one. I was going to ask you a little bit of a different question. So. You went from being a little bit of a, you know, 2.0 grade point average guy to like Seton Hall medical program. How how that trip went? Like, what's going on in your life there? Like, how did you do that? Like, I mean, with respect. Yeah, no, no, that's that's a great question. And it just comes down to discipline. And um, I didn't have discipline in the classroom. I was I was actually gifted, like, as far as just being like kind of naturally smart. And I, I could listen to the lectures and I could always do enough to just pass. I just didn't do homework. Um, I woke up every morning, like 5 a.m. And during swim season, I go to swim practice at 5 a.m. before school. Then like my school starts 740. So I go to swim practice for an hour and a half, shower, change, go to school. Then after school, I would go to another swim practice. And then I would go to like a club wrestling practice or I'd go to my jujitsu practice or whatever. So I, I just trained. I was trained two, three times a day. And um, so there wasn't really a lot of time to do homework, but, and also I think that in college, I got to like study and pick the, like, I got to study the subjects I wanted to study, but I also got to pick the teachers and my, my professors. And I had, it's sad that the education system is what it is, but I had a lot of teachers that shit on me growing up. I had one, uh, my, I had a junior my junior, was she creative writing or literature or something? I had a teacher tell me that I would never amount to anything, that Jesus. I was going to be a construction worker because I was spitting in a cup before a wrestling match because I had to lose a pound and a half. Because I was spitting in a cup in the wrestling room or in, in her classroom, I was going to be a loser, never amount to anything. So I, I just had a lot of teachers that didn't really believe in me. And uh, I'm one of those guys I feed off of positive reinforcement. So 
a lot of times I just did enough to get by, but I had great teachers that loved me, that believed in me, that supported me. And I would get A's in their classes because I, I cared. I cared about how they felt about me. So I, and I, um, so I would work harder for them. When I got to college, um, I, I just, I just, I took that same kind of work ethic and discipline that made me successful in wrestling in such a short time. I didn't start wrestling until my freshman year of high school, which guys that go division one usually start like six years old, eight years old. I started at 15. So, um, I, I think, I think that, you know, a combination of athleticism, you know, just being gifted athletically, but then also the work ethic, um, is what made me successful in wrestling. But I just taken that, that same type of work ethic. Okay. I, if I can text or go do this or go grab coffee or, you know, play, play halo with my friends for a couple hours, I can put two hours into homework. And that was just it, man. I just, I did my assignments. I, I, I would invest a couple hours a day into homework. And I went to, I had a 3.6 GPA when I graduated. Good for you. That's insane. Yeah. Thank you. I think I graduated cum laude, which is like, I don't think my, my uncle, but like no one, like no one in my immediate family. So like my brothers, sisters, no one, no one else graduated college. Um, but like, I have an aunt and uncle that graduated like summa cum laude and cum laude. So I'm one of like three people in my family that actually graduated college, but also graduated with, with honors. Wow. That's, that's cool. That's definitely cool because there are a lot of, and, and you've seen that, like you didn't take a lot, like a lot of people who don't go to college right away or takes a break or whatever. You don't get back to your education as fast either. So congratulations to you because you took care of your business while on the rise on your MMA career. So that's I appreciate that. Thank you. So you're five one and one going or five one and one going into the Kyle Spruce fight, June 12, 2004. Were you thinking UFC at this point? No. No. I was supposed to fight Melvin Gillard that fight. Melvin Melvin um got hurt and he couldn't fight me. So and when the Melvin fight was supposed to be at 160 pounds. So I had to I actually they had a day before opponent change and I fought Kyle Sprouse at 170. I think he made. I think he weighed in at 175. I don't think he can make 170. But um, yeah, I had no idea, dude. I, I I was still in kind of like college, like wrestling mode, man. I, I wasn't thinking like go to the UFC. I was just like, let's compete, let's make some money. Like that fighting was my summer job. I didn't like. I didn't have to like. I I was a lifeguard my sophomore, junior, senior year, freshman after freshman year. No, not after freshman year sophomore, junior, senior year of high school, in between my my uh, senior year and freshman year of college, I was a lifeguard. And thing out, we were making like 10, 11 bucks an hour back then. But back then, that was good money. Yeah. Um, and you're working 40 hours a week. So you're, you're, you're making decent money for a college kid. And um, I, I, I stopped lifeguarding to, to fight because I was able to make four or five grand in the summer doing these fights. And that's about how much I would make lifeguarding. And yet I was like essentially getting paid to train. So... It, it was a really good situation for me. And I like just to kind of get back to your question with the Kyle Sprouse fight. I, I wasn't thinking UFC. I was just like, all right, this is another competition. I got to win. And I was thinking I was still thinking getting ready for college the next year. I wasn't like I said, I wasn't thinking fighting the UFC. Well, how disciplined are you outside of the ring at this point? You're a lifeguard. You're on the beach. Um, are you drinking, smoking or are you living a real clean lifestyle and rolling into the fight or you're just doing what you're doing and fighting another great question i didn't smoke weed for the first time until i was 31 years old um so i was like yeah i was anti-drug for a very long time the only reason why i think i 
the only reason why I even tried weed for the first time was because of all my concussions, which I'm sure we can get into later. But um, yeah, Dr. David Blair is the one that actually kind of told me told me about weed and CBD and the, the cognitive effects and the effects I can have. Um, as far as neurologically. And so I was suffering. So I was suffering from some uh, concussion issues. So that's why I was like willing to try anything. And I, I started smoking weed now, like I have a medical card uh, now. So like, I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of marijuana use. Um, I don't drink. Um, I, I will every once in a while, I have a beer with a friend or whatever, but um, I, I don't have alcohol in my house. I, I don't get drunk. Um, I, I go, months months without even having a beer like i said it's very very like selective when i do but back then um i would i would drink with drew um i just wouldn't drink before those fights i wouldn't drink two weeks before a fight that was like kind of my thing and then when i got into the ufc i wouldn't drink six weeks before a fight and then when i won my world title i wouldn't drink 12 weeks before a fight so that was kind of like my thing but i never smoked i never i never i've never tried cocaine um I got slipped Molly one time in Vegas and that was a great time. I, <laughs> wow. I, uh, yeah, that was really, that was a great time. I, I did not appreciate like it happening, but, um, it was, it was a lot of fun, <laughs> but those are like just weed. And I've tried, and I, like I said, I got slipped Molly, uh, one of my buddies, he actually, he actually passed away, but he was the one that put in my drink after I won one of my fights. And, uh, yeah, we had a great time. Did uh, you have a microdose? Mushroom. Mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's that's a great question. I, I recently started doing that. Um, so excellent. I will do I will do a quarter, a quarter of a gram every other day. And um, the things that I've noticed with it, I'm just I'm more I'm more loving. I'm more caring. I'm more empathetic. Um, it's definitely it calms me down um, as far as like uh I still, I'm still a fighter, right? So I think a lot of us fighters kind of have that fight or flight mode and it's very quick for us to kind of snap into that. And it, it acts as a real buffer for me to be able to process shit before, um, acting. So I, 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 I love it. I think microdosing is great. I think I've done DMT and that was a really amazing experience. Um, I did a DMT like vape pen and, and, um, one of the most beautiful things about that experience is just it leaving that I'm like, there's, there's more to life than just this. Like there yeah. is something more out there. And, uh, that it was really beautiful. Like that experience is really beautiful. And, uh, I'm looking to do more stuff like that. Um, I know ayahuasca, there's like this five DMT, HT DMT stuff. Some it's like DMT on steroids. Uh, so I'm really interested in a lot of that as well. Cool, but now let's take it back to the Drew Fika days, because like if you drank with <laughs> okay. Drew, because if you drank with Drew, Drew's not, you know, Drew's the kind of guy that we I, I forgot I think it was Carlo Prater that roommated with him, and Carlo <laughs> went they they went out shopping, they bought a case of beer. Carlo went for a two hour training session, came back, and there was no case of beer. <laughs> you know, yeah, he, Drew he was, was he well, he was one hundred percent. Drew was all or nothing at everything he did. When it was training, he was training like a motherfucker. When he was, you know, with the girl, oh my god, <laughs> he was he was going after. Like it didn't matter. Like everything, he was one hundred percent. If he would like see a girl at the bar, he would just run over there and like get after it. Um. So like and with drinking, it was the same way. Like uh, I, I got a I got a cool little story. Um, I was living with my grandparents. 
or with my grandfather. My my grandmother passed away uh, probably about eight years prior, ten, maybe ten years prior to me going to college in Tucson, and that's where Drew lived at the time. And um, I lived with my papu. Uh, I'm half Greek, and uh, my Greek grandfather he he let me live with him. I, so I got to I got to live in his house for free. And typical Greeks, they drink, they eat. Like he was awesome. He cooked dinner for me every night. Um, but he was a he liked rum and coats. And he he like my my grandfather was a very high functioning alcoholic. He drank, he drank. The, just that was like kind of his thing. He would have a drink with dinner. He have a drink with this. Have a drink with that. So. It was like a Friday night and uh, Drew Drew and his girlfriend were coming to pick me up to go out. We we're going to go hit the town. I think uh, it was a week after uh, the WFF fight. Um, so we had both won. We both had some money and we didn't have any fights coming up. So we, we, we decided to go out and party. And he came he came over to my grandfather's house and my grandfather and his girlfriend were, were having some drinks. And so I, I wanted to introduce Drew and his girlfriend to my grandfather and his girlfriend. And um, so my, my grandfather and his wife asked, hey, you guys want to have a drink? Well, <laughs> one drink turned into a whole bottle of rum, a whole bottle of uh, – so a handle of rum and a bottle of vodka. So they were we were doing rum and Cokes and uh, what what are the drinks called with grapefruit juice and, and vodka? Graham. What's that called? Graham. So it was it was rum and cokes and greyhounds, and I blacked out. I don't remember leaving my grandparents' house, but I went I went to a party. I ended up puking all over the party, and they put me in a car. But Drew managed to party all night and st still dropped me off at home. <laughs> so yeah, dude, we got hammered with my grandparents, who were like seventy something at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no stopping Drew. I we we appreciate him deeply, and like I said, he's underrated. Mike, take over. <laughs> okay, so here, you, Kyle Sprouse win with a choke. Kyle Bradley rear naked choke. Right now, and then you walk into the WFF fight in Canada. Jesse Water Bogfeld knock him out in four twelve. And you're still yeah, not. Didn't he find the, the UFC? UFC? Huh? Yeah. Didn't he find the UFC Bogfeld? Yes. Yeah, at one eighty five, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I uh, again, it wasn't on my radar. It was. It just. It wasn't on my radar. That wasn't. Dude, that wasn't the why. That wasn't the reason why I was doing it. Really, it was literally make money cross train wrestling um the goal was to eventually get in the ufc but i my my thought was i was going to do the i wanted to do the matt hughes like i want to take that matt hughes approach where re he wrestled in junior college then he wrestled division one I, I think at northern illinois or eastern illinois and then he started eastern illinois and then he started fighting right so that was my thought okay junior college first go wrestle division one become an all-american after that go to fighting so it wasn't it was like on my radar after college so i was just trying to stack wins make money and then you know just wait for you know, hope for an opportunity but the opportunity just wasn't on my radar then because my plan was graduate college become a division one all-american like matt hughes and then go dominate in the ufc like matt hughes well you, is that why you took 11 months off after that after, after the which WFF one? fight, I took eleven months off. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. So I didn't take it off. I I didn't take it off. Um, I had probably four fights pull out on me, like 
Marlon Sims. I was supposed to fight in Atlantic City um, when I was in, I think it was like May, April, May of uh, 2006. I was I was in Lock Haven. Um, I, I, I went down there. I, I We went to weigh-ins. I weighed in. He weighed in. And then the day of the fight, he pulled out. Didn't want to fight. Yeah, pulled out of the fight. Um, he ended up going on the Ultimate Fighter TV show uh, not 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 too long after that. But, yeah, no show. And Frankie Edgar was actually fighting on that card. So I got to see Frankie Edgar fight you know, before he was Frankie Edgar. I remember him from wrestling at Clarion University in Pennsylvania, which they were a PSAC, but they were in the same conference as me at Lockhaven. And uh, Frankie Edgar wrestled my roommate in college, and they had really good matches. So I knew who Frankie Edgar was. And I got to see him fight that night. And I was supposed to fight on that same card. But like I said, Marlon Sims pulled out. Um, I was supposed to fight Upshur again. He wouldn't fight me. Um, I had a bunch of guys just pull out. Like, I was too goddamn dangerous. Just too. I, I was submitting everybody. I was a Division One wrestler at that time. And I and I was, like, a national champ in boxing. So it was. I was a very dangerous fight for guys that wanted to go to the UFC. So I, I, I understand them pulling out, especially like, you know, being more business focused. But for me, I wasn't thinking UFC for these fights. I was thinking stack my record, get wins, make some money. The UFC is going to come after I graduate. Yeah, screwed up your summer job. That's what happened. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Dude, that, I had to work for my parents. I was doing construction. My parents own a construction company. So that summer, because I wasn't able to get fights, um, I was like wheelbarrow on concrete, digging ditches, plumbing pools, like doing all sorts of shit, trying to bend and tie in rebar. Like it was, I mean, I was doing hard work and it's 120 degrees outside in Arizona. Um, I definitely <laughs> preferred the training for fighting over that shit. Yeah, that's wild. So after 11 months, you finally get back into the ring of the cage. Um, June 11, 2005. What's up, Michael? It's rage in the cage. I think you can say I think you're slipping. Okay. So, probably. Okay. Just clean up a little bit. Just I need a microdose. I, I need to eat my mushrooms. I haven't had it in a while. That's it. Right. Adam Rowland is your next opponent. Thank you, Miguel. Yeah, I'm trying to the Adam Rowland fight. I'm trying to remember that fight. I don't really remember too much from it. I think he was a wrestler. Uh, I think he was a like successful high school wrestler, maybe a state champion. Um I think I finished him pretty quickly. I, that fight doesn't like, it was a very quick, like it wasn't, I think that was like a day of opponent too. I, I didn't know about anything about him. I think, I think I showed up to, I sh like rage in the cage. They're like, Hey, we got this guy for you. And then I ended up showing up that that was no longer the guy. And they rage in the cage was having a hard time finding me opponents, man. Like they had a really hard time finding guys that would fight me. So this guy, Adam, like poor, Dude, that dude was just outgunned, man. He had no business being in there with me. And it, Roland just didn't didn't care. But Roland wanted the money that I'd bring in, right? So they just needed to find somebody that would fight me. And, uh, yeah, that guy – that's why I don't remember it too much because it wasn't something no. that I, I had to really get, like, get up for, right? Like, no no offense to Adam Roland. He just – you know, there's, there's, a, there's a difference between JV and varsity, right? Like – and he just wasn't there yet. He needed more time to get to where I was at. And, uh, yeah, he just wasn't there. Like, so, at that point, did you have awareness of other guys that were getting – or, you know, there were pros in your area. 
besides yeah, Drew well, as well. Like uh, the Lolly brothers were there with their team. You know, in the neighboring states, you had you know you expand a little bit. There's Diego Sanchez. Yeah. You guys, they're starting to run into fight. Joe Stevenson down there. Well, what's your opinion? Where, where are you fitting in with those guys? Yeah, um, I actually made my transition over to Arizona Combat Sports in 2004, um, right right after my freshman year of college, because Drew would drive up would drive up from Tucson um, up to Phoenix, and he would train at Arizona Combat Sports. So he introduced me to the Lally brothers. And Gustavo Dantes, um, I immediately fell in love, um, and that ended up becoming my home for I don't know the next like twelve years um, until I opened up my own gym. But I would still go in there and train with them, get get coached by them, um, and I'd also I also went to the lab. But yeah, they uh, drew Joe Riggs was was a guy, big guy. Um, I, I trained with him a little bit, but he was just so much bigger than me. And Joe was a really scary guy. Matt Lucas was another guy that I trained with. He was bigger than me, but he was a great workout partner. Um, I'm trying Edwin Deweese. We never trained together, but he, uh, um, him and I grew up in the same neighborhood. He actually lived a block away from me um, growing up, like throughout my childhood. Uh, he ended up fighting the UFC. So th yeah, there were a lot of guys and they kind of um, Homer Moore was another guy. He wrestled wow. at Apollo. Yeah. He wrestled at Apollo high school, state champ. Wrestled at Phoenix College with one of my my high school one of my high school wrestling coaches was one of his Phoenix College uh, coaches uh, Dave Severn whose uh, brother whose brother's Dan the B Severn uh, they all wrestled at ASU but um, so like I had kind of seen the path there were guys in in Arizona that had made it to the UFC um, just my goals were a little bit different I wanted to graduate college first so that that was that was that was just it at the at Arizona Combat Sports, that's like the era of like the Steinbeis brothers, like uh Tim Kennedy. Yep. He yeah, came I, down I, to I, California. Yeah, cool, cool. That that was definitely yeah. a solid team back then. Dude, we were great, man. And then it just got better. Like so 2004, 2005, 2006, the Steinbeis brothers were my training partners, uh, which Steve, he absolutely terrified me. Steve was a great kickboxer. And I got to see him in a kickboxing fight just kicked this dude's head off. It was wild. Like, Steve and Ray were both great. Ray Steinbeis was a state champion wrestler. He wrestled in the Marines. He was on the all-Marine team. And he was a he was an undefeated amateur boxer. So I had great training partners there. And and, and Ray Steinbeis, he was, he was amazing. Then Tim Kennedy came down in, like, 2005, 2006. He came down. And then once he came down, um, we started getting like more of the ASU wrestlers, and that's when Ryan Bader, Ryan Bader yep. Shane Velasquez, CB Dalloway, Jesse yep. Forbes. Then we had Aaron Simpson came along. Kane ended up going to AKA because they had all the bodies, and I think they paid him a lot of money to go out there. But Bader and all those other guys, we we became the team. And then MTX Audio came and sponsored us. So then we all like we could all train full time. So. I was getting like I think we we're all getting like fifteen hundred bucks a month, which was enough for us to survive on, and so we could just train full time and fight. And that team just took off, man. It was it was a great team to be a part of, and it sucks that it just fell apart because that I that's when I was at my best. When when that team broke up, my career tanked, and um, it was because I lost that team, I lost that unit, I had I lost my training partners. I lost that 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 schedule that we had. Um, 
it sucked, dude. It really sucked because my my career my career really took a shit after that, and um, I was really I had a really hard time getting it back until 2012 when I made the change to start going to the lab. I started splitting my time 50-50. I was going 50% to Arizona Combat Sports and 50% to the lab. And the reason why that was, there's multiple reasons, but Gustavo Dantes and the Lally brothers split apart. And then Gustavo Dantes stopped working with MMA fighters. He only wanted to focus on gi jiu-jitsu, which gi jiu-jitsu doesn't really help me that much for fighting. You know, like there, there, there's plenty of arguments that can be made about gi jiu-jitsu and how it does make you better. But for fighting, it did make a lot of sense. And so I, I ended up eating a little bit of crow, swallowing my pride, made the call to John Crouch and the guys over at, at uh, the MMA lab, and they welcomed me with open arms. And John Crouch, Ben Henderson, Tim, uh, Tim Welch, Scott Holtzman, all the guys that were there, they, they played a really pivotal role in my life as well. I mean, that, that win with Edson Barbosa really catapulted me to, to a new level to where, like, I, I have a career that I can really be proud of because of some of these wins that I was able to get. And a lot of these wins or a lot of, a lot of these opportunities came from, you know, people like, like the guys from the lab or even um, the Drew Fickett, like a lot of these, like my whole life experience, like kind of all came to fruition. And then like having, having those guys at the lab, like it really, it, I mean, they just took my career to a new level, man. So I'm really grateful for them. Weird. You mentioned a lot of names. Like when you were talking about Arizona Combat Sports, one of the reasons that it had a dip, I believe it was Ryan Bader and C.B. Dalloway kind of like had issues and they kind of split the team. Am I off on that? Yeah, you are. It was. Um, uh, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm not sorry. I'm not trying to like talk shit about. Oh, or, like, no, I don't know. Yeah. 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 No, just, just to clarify, it was. Uh, I want to say this as delicate, delicately as possible without like being having this mistaken, but the loud difficult. They um, they are very they're they're very consumed by fear, and that fear kind of gets the best of them. They they do a lot of negative. They they're very negative. They have a lot of negative reinforcement, um, and so they were they weren't really good for you mentally. Their training was fucking great. They were great trainers. They were great technicians. They had good game plans. Um, they they made me the man I am, like for sure. My career wouldn't have been shit without them. Like I give them all the credit. But I also think my career also went to shit because of them and their negativity. And they drove CB, Bader, and Jesse Forbes and Aaron Simpson away. They They just drove them away with their negativity and shit. And that just it sucked because it impacted me. And I was like, those guys are, those guys are big. They didn't invite me to go with them, which broke my fucking heart. Cause I thought we were teammates and I thought like, I thought we were brothers and they didn't invite me to come with them. And uh, so I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to be loyal to the Lallies. And I stayed there, but yeah, losing that team hurt me. And it was, it was because of the Lallies and their negativity. That's the reason why the, they, uh, the guys left and started their own thing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a side story, like as far a little bit that I know too. The Lollies, after those guys left, started drifting away. Like I think one of them went back to real estate and things like that. And they're, they're no longer involved in the sport. And that's a shame because they were at one point, like he said, yeah, who what was the uh, name of the audio, the sponsor you mentioned? MTX. Um, we had MTX audio. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I don't know if that's the same company, but at one point I, I was booking a lot of their fighters. I, I, I was matchmaking for them, and Todd yeah. asked for my address, and I got – this was the only time I ever got anything super beneficial. I got FedEx or uh, UPS, two big uh, 48-inch screen TVs that he was just giving me as a gift for, like, booking his guy. Oh, yeah, we had Soyo. We had Soyo. They oh, were a, a TV technology company first. Yeah, we had them first. Um, that was, yeah, I, there yeah. was kind of so like, a, there was, there's some stock scam in, involved with that shit. <laughs> but, but when you're talking about having a high level team around you, there's that kind of stuff where they're, they're managing sponsors, they're managing taking care of people, you know, that stuff is good to have going on around you. So, you know, it, it's hard to keep going too. It, it does wear on you too. So my hat's off to him. I, I have a lot of respect for him from those days and, you know, they're Matt Hume students originally, so I... Yeah, you know, I and Maurice Smith. But the yeah, Trevor, they, I think, fought in Abu Dhabi in the first one. I think you're right. Yeah, Trevor was a good yeah. uh, ankle lock, heel hook guy. Um, Todd, Trevor and Todd come from money. Their their parents own the largest fishing cannery in Alaska. So they, they have trust funds. Um, they, have, they had money, so they were able to just invest in training and martial arts. They, they fell in love with it. And, um, yeah, they, they got linked up with Matt Hume and Maurice Smith and they're, they're great coaches. Uh, but I, they were doing too much. We had them, they were our trainers, our managers, our agents, like you, you have to split up. But again, I didn't know any better. I, I really, I didn't know any better, but, um, trainer, like people need to stay in their lanes. They need to stay in lanes. Like, I'm not saying that people can't be diversified and have multiple skill sets. But I don't think it's it's and you know the saying goes like it's not good to have all your eggs in one basket, right? So, um, I don't know how much money I missed out on, how many opportunities I missed out on by them like kind of managing my career. Um, I think I could have made a lot more money had I not had them managing me and had I not done the uh, MTX Audio and Soyo thing. I think I could have made a lot more money. But um, yeah, man, it was it was it was a crazy time back then. It was a crazy time, but they're good guys. Um, Todd, Todd, yeah, he he stepped away. Uh, Trevor still owns Arizona Combat Sports. He still trains some fighters. I go in there every once in a while as like do guest appearances. But um, yeah, he's uh, they're, they're I mean they're still involved. Like I saw Todd in the gym um, like a month ago. I was in there. I did a did a boxing kickboxing class, and Todd came in, and I got to bullshit with him and give him give him all hugs. Like everybody, we're all cool. I mean, it just. It's it just crazy. Like I was kind of at my peak and then like the whole team fell apart. And that that's, I think that really hurt my career. Yeah. You mentioned Gustavo Dantes. How good was he on the mat? I mean, besides the fact that he lost to Eddie Bravo, he was a very talented jujitsu guy. He was a Brown belt world champion. Um, I mean, and then that, then he got his black belt. Like they, he, he was one of the best in the world. Yeah, like he was a very good jujitsu guy. Um, every time I would roll with him, I, I mean, it, it was like I was caught in a spider web. He was he was very good, very technical. Um, didn't like getting hit, so he didn't have a very long MMA career. But he um, he was tough, man. He's a great coach. He's very good for your mind. But that's also why he left because of the negativity of the lallies. He just had to separate himself from that. So like. It just sucks, man. It just sucks. Like they're they're kind of victims of their own kind of weird personalities. 
Um, they're like I said, they're just a lot of fear, man. A lot of fear. The, the uh, Stavo yeah. for that for that Eddie Bravo fight, I think I think that weight cut to one forty five killed him because he's really big, really long for that. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was. I think he walks around like one fifty five, one sixty. Um, I, I I think you know Eddie Bravo was just good, man. I mean, Eddie Bravo, what? Yeah. He didn't beat Hoyler. Who did he beat Henzo or somebody? Who did he beat? He beat one of the Hoyler. Gracies. Yeah. Hoyler, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. He was really good. His style was so different and unique, and a lot of like the traditional jiu-jitsu guys were shitting on him until he started catching them. And um, you you learn more from a loss than you ever do from a win. So I think that opportunity from Gustavo to to lose that match to Eddie Bravo, I think it really opened up his mind because we started doing a lot more. Well, I wasn't with Gustavo when he fought Eddie Bravo, but I noticed that he would incorporate a lot more flexibility type moves into his jujitsu that I think was inspired by Eddie Bravo, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's cool. The USC also brought in Ryan Diaz from Canada a few times, the national champion kickboxer. Oh, man. Ryan the Lion Diaz, he's the freaking best. God damn it, that guy is amazing. I love him. He is such a good dude. Oh, yeah, he was, he was probably the best Muay Thai coach I have ever been around engaged with he is freaking amazing i love training with him i love sparring with him i loved it when he held pads for me he was good for my mind i would bring him i would bring him out on fights um because he was just such a good positive influence um i i yeah i can't say enough great things about him before my edson barbosa fight i went to ryan ryan diaz's house in um in las vegas he held pads for me. He like he had a sauna in his house. So I would like I was cutting weight there. Like they would get me IV bags. Like, dude, he was such a great teammate. Oh, yeah, dude. He he changed a lot of our lives, man. Like him, like he he made an impact not only on me, but um John Moraga. Like he uh and then Benson Henderson, he made he made the move over to the lab and he's partnered up with the guys at the lab. Um, so like Scott Holtzman. Tim Welch. I mean, I would even say um, uh, Sean O'Malley like is benefited from him. Like a lot of guys have benefited from Ryan Ryan Diaz. He's just a good dude. He's a great technician, um, and honestly, like his fight career doesn't really showcase his true skill set because I, Ryan Ryan was a great guy. He was a he was a technician, but Ryan didn't he didn't want to work as hard as as all the other guys did. Like he wasn't the guy that was going to get up at five in the morning and go run a mountain. Right. He wasn't, that wasn't him. Like he would go hit pads and do his thing. He didn't do anything like really extra. Um, So he was very technical, but when fights would go the distance and stuff, he would tend to fade and that's where he would lose. But um, he was, he dude, like, he's just great. And like I said, his record, um, his MMA record, it doesn't really fully encapsulate his true skill set. But well, he was he was great in the room. You done your thirty five pounder fighting hundred fifty five pounders back in the day too. You have yeah, a common yeah. opponent with him. You have a common Who? opponent with him. Hermes Franca. He he, oh. he lost the hook. He lost the hook and shoot belt to Hermes, but he was a hook and shoot champion. Oh, okay. for I, I believe that's the situation. So so yeah, he's he's too small for Hermes. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. But but that that was that was his tale. It, you know. You know, another guy who he probably influenced a lot that you didn't mention is Demetrius Johnson. 
Because I did, yeah. They both come from up there and, and with Matt Hume and stuff like that. You know, Ryan Ryan's another Matt Hume student. So I I I'm didn't know Ryan I didn't know Ryan trained with DJ. Yeah, no, I I'm I'm assuming that, that they had to run across each other up under Hume's wing. That's all I'm I don't know that for sure. Maybe. But maybe but, uh, you guys know Pat Runez. Have you heard of that name, Pat Runez? I'm not uh, Pat, So um you remember Tachi Palace? Tachi Palace, the yeah. Tachi fights. So he yeah. won their uh he won their 125 pound world title, and then he fought in Virginia. I forget the the promotion. It was in Fairfax, Virginia, but he won their world title as well. I think he beat John Dotson for that world title. And um Pat Runez is from that Pacific Northwest, that Seattle area. So when Pat Runez ended up like he was he was actually one of my students. Pat was a part of my amateur team when I when I was coaching amateur fighters at Arizona Combat Sports. He's part of the amateur team. Then he worked his way onto the pro team, won all these fights, and then he had to move for work back to Pacific Northwest. And he hooked up with Matt Hume and started training with DJ. And Pat Runez, I think, is probably one of the larger, uh, one of the larger people or persons that made an impact on DJ's career. I, I would say that DJ can attribute a lot of his success to Pat Runez coming in and training with him. So, yeah, I mean, that's another guy to kind of have on your radar. Pat Runez definitely helped out DJ. Uh, I don't know about Ryan Diaz and DJ, but Matt Hume and Maurice Smith, that legacy that's there, I mean, it's undeniable that he is one of the best coaches to ever coach MMA or mixed martial arts. Let, let's take it to the other side of the country. What about Eddie Alvarez? Did you guys ever work out together? No, no, man. And you kind of, you guys kind of alluded to some, some names earlier, like with uh, Joe Stevenson and, um, and what Diego Sanchez, uh, Carlo Prater was on my radar back then. Carlos Condit was on my radar back then. I didn't really know anything about Eddie Alvarez. I, he hadn't really like been on my radar. Uh, Jorge Mastodal was on my radar. Like those were all guys I thought I was going to fight in other promotions. Eventually, uh, all guys that I heard of, um, and this was a, back in the at this time I wasn't considering 155. This was before my UFC fight. I was I was a welterweight. I was fighting at 170. Um, I walked around like 175, so I didn't really have to cut much weight. Um, so I, I I I just thought like with my wrestling and my conditioning, even though that some of these guys would be bigger than me, that they were they would have a hard time with me. So I never really like cut weight. But a lot of those guys were on my radar. Um, it just never happened. What about Amanda Nunez? Did you guys ever spar? Did you not hear about this? I have not, but I heard no, you guys okay. had some legendary sparring sessions. Uh, Amanda hits like a man. Um, Amanda, Amanda's awesome. I, I uh, God damn, she, she's awesome. Yeah, she. Uh, I sparred with her a lot. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not. I wasn't hitting her, hitting her hard or whatever. But we. I would I would spar with her and then I'd also like kind of coach her in the middle of sparring like hey you know because she would be a southpaw I'm like make sure you're beating my foot set up that straight left obviously she doesn't speak great English but I would like kind of like I would try to show her like beat my foot beat my foot stay outside my foot set up your so you can set up your straight left or whatever um, yeah we we sparred a lot like she was she was awesome she was a hard worker I mean she was like 155 pounds like so she was a big girl she hit like a man. Um, and she was great, man. She was a great training partner. She always showed up. She was always there. 
Um, I couldn't be more proud and happy for her success. Um, I, I, I think if she were to see me, if we were to run into, into each other in person, I would be, I would be remiss if we wouldn't give each other a huge hug and, uh, just, it, it would definitely be like a great thing to see her in person for sure. I think for was both this of in us. Arizona? No, this was back at AMA. This was AMA. at, uh, okay. yeah. 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 With, uh, Mike, I forget his last name. Um, Constantino. Okay. You guys remember Mike Constantino? He was like a manager, promoter, did a lot of stuff, but he, he was the owner of AMA and he's the one that had all, brought in all these fighters. Do you ever go to the local MMA shows in Arizona? I've been. I, what was that? Um, there was that that one uh, World Series of Fighting. I, I went to one of those fights. Uh, I think it was one of the last ones that Justin Justin Gaethje had um, here. I I'm trying to think, man. I I haven't been to any recently. I I've been I have been to a few since I've retired. Um, it's like I'll only go like if I know guys are fighting or like I'll go and support guys. But I've been so I've been out of the gym. I've been so out of just kind of the whole MMA like um, like community. I, I just I, I'm doing medical sales now and I'm, I'm kind of going in more of a professional, uh, more professional. I go to F45 for it as like that's like my my new gym and I'll supplement going into Arizona combat sports every once in a while to get some different workouts in. But, um, yeah, I've kind of separated myself from, like, the MMA, and I, I've just kind of more focused on my more professional career. So I don't really – I'm not as involved, but there are still guys that I care about that I will go see, especially if it's local. Did, did you ever work out with Anthony Bircheck? Oh, I fucking hate that piece of shit. Um, he wait, walked wait, on wait, to – Stop, stop. Why does everybody hate him? Because he's a piece of shit. He's, he's a liar. Um, he's, he, he acts like he's something better than he is. Um, the guy fucking dude, he's such a douche and his wife's Mercedes is a douche too. They just think they're so much better than they really are. Um, he's a fucking quitter. He acts like he's something more than that, but he's a quitter. He walked onto our college wrestling team. He made it like a month before he fucking quit. He couldn't one, he couldn't handle it couldn't handle the pace, couldn't handle the workout. And he talked so much shit that pe and people just didn't like him because he just, he would talk so much shit, but then he couldn't back it up. He would just get his ass kicked in the room. So no one liked him. I never liked him. Um, he's just not a good person. I don't know what he's doing. Like maybe I, I, I know he's got a gym and so maybe he's helping people out, but he's still a douchebag. I don't like him. And I, I, I really just don't like his wife either. He, he sucks. <laughs> Were you at the Chris Curiasso's amateur show when Chris's wife punched him and he called the cops? <laughs> no, but I wish. I love Chris Curiasso, man. He's a great dude. Chris is a good old Tucson boy, man. And George Roop is another good Tucson boy. Yeah, that had some success in the UFC. Curiasso and uh, Roop are great Tucson guys, but there's a reason why they're not friends with uh, Anthony Burchek. Right, right. So you hit King of the Cage, <clears throat> you get a no contest with Tony Lamas for legal strike. You take another six months off, dude. And then you you're back with Roland again against Leonard Wilson. You know, another kind of stay busy fight. You finally get the call to the UFC. How, how did you receive it? When did it happen? Yeah, that's a that's a good story. Um, so I was actually I got the call, I think it was like beginning of August. 
of 2006, beginning of August 2006, I was actually starting to pack up to drive back to Pennsylvania um, for wrestling season. And um, my Trevor Lally called me and was like, hey, uh, do you want to fight in the UFC in three weeks? I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, Hermes Frank, uh, Hermes Franco's opponent pulled out. I think he's supposed to fight Spencer Fisher, maybe. Somebody, somebody got hurt and pulled out, and um, they need a last minute replacement. And you know, if if you're ready, you know, if you if you want it, like we'll give it to you because they had heard about me. Um, the Skipper Kelp, who's friends with Dana White, uh, Skipper Kelp was the head boxing coach at UNLV when I was at Lock Haven. And so Skipper yeah, was, Kelp got this. He was Roy. He booked Roy Nelson. He booked like a bunch of MMA guys too. But like he goes back to the old days. Of, he was Tito's boxing coach back in the day too. Yeah. And he was a member of the national team, the national Olympic team. Like I don't know if he went to the Olympics, but he was a national. Uh, you know, like he knows Mike Tyson. He knows those guys from amateur boxing career. So Skip yeah. Kelp is the real deal. I, I'm sorry to jump in, but yeah, just so people know. No, he's he, he was legit. I, I I attribute my left hook to Skipper, Skipper Kelp. Um, he's not the one that taught it to me, but he's the one that worked on the Lally Brothers left hook. Um, I did train with Skipper Kelp. I did go to his gym and train. Um, but I, I my left hook to the body, my left hook up top, like putting those punches together. I, I put a lot. Of, I give a lot of my credit to to Skipper Kelp and his legacy for helping me with develop that. But yeah, he was great. So he was the coach over at UNLV. He saw me win my national title. Um, in boxing, he had no idea that I was a wrestler, but Skipper Kelp was good friends with the Lally brothers. The Lally brothers trained with Skipper Kelp and, um, and Tito and Chuck when all those guys were in Vegas. Um, who are some of those other, God dang it. I I'm forgetting some names. The guy that got flatlined by, um, by GSP. He's like a light skinned black guy. He's doing like, uh, movies now. Um, he fought GSP. Jay Huron. So Jay Huron was there. Um, so a lot of guys like in the Lallies were kind of a part of that group um, that trained there in Vegas. So somehow Skipper in the, in the Lallies, like the Val Lallies, like told Skipper about me and Skipper like saw my boxing or whatever. So Skipper had talked to Dana or somebody told them about me. And that's how, that's how the Lallies got the call from the UFC was through, uh, through Skipper Kelp. And then, yeah, I was packing up, getting ready to go to college, and I got that call, and th that was my dream. Like, my dream was to fight in the UFC. Um, obviously, I thought I was going to – I thought I would wait till after college, but it was a good opportunity. It was Hermes Franca. That was a fight I thought I could win. Um, I thought – yeah, I thought that was, like, a pretty easy fight, actually. Um, so I, I took it, and I called my, my, my wrestling coach back in Lockhaven. I told him that, like, I got this great opportunity. He knew – like he knew that I was an MMA fighter. He knew that was my job in the off season. And um, so I called him and told him that like, Hey, I, uh, I'm going to go do, I'm going to, I'm going to take this opportunity. And I also called my, my boxing coach from Lock Haven, let him know that I got this opportunity that I was going to take it. And yeah, the rest was just history, man. I, I started training. It was my first time ever cutting down to 155. Um, I hadn't weighed under 160 pounds since high school. Um, I, I wrestled 152s in high school, but I wrestled 165s in college because I walked around like 175 and you had to do hydration tests and all these. And you had to do a hydration and body fat test. So you like you couldn't drop massive amounts of weight like you could back in the day. 
um, especially with same day weigh-ins. So I wrestled 165, boxed 165. So I, I was like trying to focus, like I'd never cut that much weight. Uh, so like, it was really just about trying to get my weight down the, the two to two weeks I had to prepare before that fight. But it was, uh, yeah, it was like, kind of like, uh, it was like a whirlwind. It happened so fast. It's like, I got the call. I, I called all my coaches. I unpacked my shit and I just started training. I, I just started training and I'm like, I had to figure out how to lose a bunch of weight in, in two weeks. So yeah, it, it was just a while. Were you done with college? Were you done with college at that point? No, I was, I was going into my senior year. I was, I was just a junior. So I was going into my senior year. I dropped oh. out. Yeah. I didn't go back and actually finish my degree until 2016, 2017. Um, my, I like, I did one semester at Seton hall. I absolutely hated New Jersey. I had the training partners were shit at, at AMA. Um, I didn't, I just didn't like New Jersey as a whole. It just, the, Sit the town, the state sucks. The roads suck. The traffic sucks. The people aren't nice. Like it just, then the and I don't know. The sun never shines, so that place sucks. So I came back home, fought for a few years, and after I retired, I owned a gym for a couple of years. When I sold my gym, I was able to um, walk away with enough money to where I could put myself back through college. I only had a year and a half. I, I had like yeah. a year, like a little over a year left. So I did, I did summer school, then two, two full semesters, full time, full loads. And I graduated, um, in April, 2017. Wow. Wow. So here you are heading into UFC. You're going to drop out of college and chase your dream here. How much were you getting paid? <laughs> $3,000 to show $3,000 a win to fight a guy that ranked fifth in the world. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're still uh, a little bit of a positive thinker, <laughs> you know. Dude, the UFC is just an opportunity. That's it. That's all it is. It's just an opportunity, and um, they never loved me as much as I loved them. Um, the sport didn't love me as much as I loved it. I, I never got paid what I was what I what I what I should have been paid. I was always overlooked, underappreciated. But I agree with except that. except for when I fought, you know, except for when I fought, like. What I made more money losing than I ever did winning, um, but they knew that they could call me and I'd fight anybody and I would make it a fight. Every single one of my losses, I would, yeah, I would say eighty percent of my losses, I were fights I took on short notice. You know, well, you take out those short notice fights. I probably have. let's talk Hermes sure. Rackett, fifth in the world, savage. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, everybody's talking about him. You beat yeah. him from pillar to post, except for the last minute of the fight. I gassed myself out. Yeah, I gassed myself out. Um, the moment was was too big for me. I I'm walking to the octagon and I see Tim Duncan, and I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Like this is real. <laughs> but, like the lights are on. I'm in. I'm in the cage and. Um, I like, I just blanked out, dude. I completely blacked out that whole fight. I don't remember anything from that fight. I just, I was so just caught up in the moment. Um, I just relied on my wrestling. Dude, I don't even think I fucking tried boxing him and I could have beat the brakes off him boxing, but it was, yeah, it, it was very surreal. It was, a, it, the moment was too big. I was 21 years old and I just was not prepared for that. And, um, yeah, I beat the brakes off that guy. And then he goes and knocks out Spencer Fisher. And then his next fight is Sean Shirt. And that easily could have been me, dude. 
that easily could have been me. I was way better boxer than than um, way better boxer than Spencer Fisher. I was obviously a better wrestler than both those fuckers, and so I, I feel like I would have flatlined Spencer. Um, and then Sean Shirk, you know, he's juiced out of the, out of his mind. He probably would have beat me, but he he wouldn't have he couldn't have beat me naturally. You get him off the juice, I would have fucked him up too. But uh, yeah, he was just he was just roided out to the gills. So I, I would have lost that fight, but. Um, I would have, I would have definitely been a been a decent money maker. I would have had more money uh, had I beat that. Had I beat um, Hermes, had I beat Hermes, I, I would have been. I, I think my career would have been a lot different. But whatever, I, I'm happy. Dude, like I said, it, it was an opportunity. You, you were right there. You were right. I like, know. Oh, like we, Miguel and I, we studied like for years. We've studied the independent grind. Like this isn't like oh, I'm just reading a record and going through it. For 20 years, Miguel and I have been talking about the independent grind. And at this point, we're like, man, that's a live dog. But Hermes Franca is Hermes Franca. And when you showed the level difference between the two of you, minus the you know one minute of the fight, oh, dude, we, we're like, that, that guy's going to be a world champion. He just needs just, a, just the opportunity. I think I had like 21 takedowns in that fight or something. I had something absurd. There was like a cert, absurd amount of takedowns. I don't know if it was 20, but it was a, there was an absurd amount of takedowns in that fight. And John, John, um, big John McCarthy kept standing us up that motherfucker. Like, so if he would have let me just kind of do my thing on the ground a little bit longer, I think I, I, I would have had the conditioning to, uh, to make it through. Yeah, yeah. But he kept standing us up. He stood us up so goddamn quickly, which, you know, Good for him, but like I'm watching some of these fights now, and I'm just like, even with the uh, the the recent lightweight title fight, Oliver. I I mean, I felt like that fight could have gotten st- stood up a couple times, but they didn't. They let they let them work. So, you know, things are a little bit different now than they were back then. But um, you know, ultimately that loss that loss catapulted me into becoming a world champion. So, you know, oh. like I've yeah, I mean, it's Dude, every put everybody on notice. Put everybody on notice. They've got this crazy little kid, you know, in the, from from nowhere, twenty one years old, little wrestler, boxer. You got to watch out for him. Yeah, yeah. You also had a uh, a training partner, Sam Young, that had passed away, uh, way too young, as a heart attack. Ooh, yeah, man. If you're really trying to, you're really trying to get me going now. Um, he died in my arms, bro. Yeah, we were we sparred. Um, He was, uh, he was, I was training for Gleason T-Bow. Gleason was a, was a southpaw and Sam was a southpaw. And uh, I, as far as training goes, I would be like the man in the middle and they would bring like a fresh guy in on me every round, right? Shark tank. I would do, I would, yeah. yeah, shark tank. And I would do four or five, five minute rounds with a fresh guy every round. And Sam would come in and give me, give me some smoke, you know, from that, give me that Southpaw look, that boxer look, like he wasn't a great wrestler or anything, but he would come in there and he would just go hard. And he was somebody I could always fucking count on, dude. Even before he like joined our gym, like I could count on him to be there. And, um, I had just finished the round and I, for, I said something to him, like we were, we were joking and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, you're next or something like, uh. You know, yeah, because he he had a fight coming up. I'm like, oh, like he's like great rounds. I'm like, yeah, buddy, you're you're next. You're next. Get in there, because he he had to go do his like his man in the middle, and um, so he did a couple rounds. And um, when I was like, I was cleaning up, finishing up, and then he him and uh, one of our boxing coaches, 
that, that would come in Kelly, uh, Coach Kelly, I forget his last name, but Coach Kelly, he would come in and uh, him and um, Sam went into the ring and they were going to go just do a just a light round boxing, just like touching, going to work on a couple things that uh, Coach Kelly saw in the MMA, in the octagon at Arizona Combat Sport. He just wanted to work with them on a couple things. So they're just going to do a couple rounds. And um, I actually walked over, hit the timer to uh, to get that, to get going, get the round going. And I start walking towards the locker room because I was done. I was done training. They were working. I, I already said all my goodbyes. And I start walking to the, to the, to the uh, locker room and I just hear a crash. Just someone fell down in the, in the ring and I hear Kelly like, yo, what's going on? Hey, Hey, Sam, get up. Oh. And so I go over there and he's not breathing. He's not breathing. He's unconscious and he, but he has a pulse. And so I fucking, I run to the front desk and luckily we had a uh, we had a member that was a paramedic that was actually working the front desk for us that night just randomly like this guy like he was just a member but he was working the front desk because he's family friends with the lallies and he was just helping out for that that day and he came back and we started doing I, I called nine one one um he he ran back started doing CPR I called nine one one right away and I was like I was holding him and. We were, we, were, we were switching off, doing CPR, and I was holding his hand, and I was just there, like, come on, Sam, come on, Sam. And the ambulance came, like, dude, it felt, it seemed like, like, just like a minute, two minutes. They were there so fucking quickly. And um, they got him going. They started fucking, they hook, started hooking up the pads, the defibrillators pads to him. And they were, like, doing the oxygen thing, and they, they were, like, trying, but, like, I don't think he had a pulse anymore. And uh, they were trying to get him going. And uh, I got a call from his wife like 10 minutes later that he was dead. Oh, my God. And he had, and he had a daughter. He had two. He had just had a baby girl. And he had like another daughter that was. Uh, fuck, man. She was just like a couple years old, man. And um, they'll never know how great their fucking dad was. And it's uh, it's it's a shame, man. It's really it's really. It's really sad, but um, that guy died in my arms after sparring with me. He came in there for me that night. That was the only reason why he was there was for me to give me rounds. So he could have been spending that time with his family. What happened was going to happen either way. Like he had a congenital like heart defect. The, the, the lining of his walls were really thin. So uh, matter of time. It was, it, yeah. yeah, it was going to happen. It was going to happen anyways, but um, that was the most fucked up thing that's ever happened in my life, seeing somebody die and having somebody die in my arms. And uh, he, uh, I, I was able to raise some money for him and his family. I had to go fight fucking Gleason T. Balak a couple weeks later, dude, and I was not. I wasn't me. I, I Man, I wasn't me. And, that's a heavyweight. Um, that's a heavyweight to carry into a fight. I was never the same, dude. I was never like I all I did was lose after that, man. I was never the same. Like that that fucked me up for so long. Just wondering like when is it gonna be my time? You know, and, and could I be in this? Like I could be fucking sparring the next thing you know, dead. I just man, I was never the same after that. And um yeah, man, that was that was fucking probably the most yeah, that like by far the most tragic thing that's ever happened to me. By far. 
No, that's very strong stuff. Now, why I hate to turn it right back around the business, but why you know you're you're an established fighter at this point. I know you know you're going back to UFC or whatever, but why didn't you just tell him, look, I'm going to take a, a knee on this one. You know what I mean? Why why would you not take a break for yourself? You seem like a thoughtful person too. Like you know that had to cross your mind. Hey, you're like a decent human being, yeah, right? <laughs> Dude, um, the UFC did not fucking like me, bro. They, um, Sean, Joe Silva, if I didn't take that fight with Gleason T-Bow or stay in it, then he told me that he was going to sit me for six months minimum. He wouldn't know when another opportunity would come for at least six to eight months. So they would just hold these fights over you, man. Like I was forced into fights. Like if I didn't take the Abel Trujillo fight, I was going to sit out for a long time. If I didn't take the Joe Lowe's on fight, I didn't know when, when I'd fight again. Like, they would just, like, pressure me, man. They would just pressure me into these fights. And I'm like, well, fuck, I know I can beat these guys. I know I can beat them. Like, I'm better. Like, Joe Lozon fucking sucks, dude. Like, I know he's got a good record, but I beat the brakes off that dude. Like, he like he got one opportunity where he ended up, like, getting me to the ground and got my back. He couldn't do shit. Like, he couldn't do shit. He wasn't better at me at boxing. He wasn't better at me at wrestling. And, like, I he won that fight because I fucking gassed out because I had a two-week training camp. You know, like I had to go from 185 pounds to 155 in 17 days. Like, fuck, dude. Like, no one can do that healthy and then then expect to perform at a high level against a top 10 guy. And, yeah, I, like, but if I didn't take these fights, they, they would always threaten to shelf me. And, like, the, the contract they gave me was absolute fucking shit. Um, 10 and 10 to fight, 10 and 10 to fight uh, Edson Barbosa. 12 and 12 to fight um to fight Joe Lozon. 12 and 12 to fight uh to fight um Melvin Gallard. All those guys were making two to four times more than me. So Edson Barbosa was making like 24 or 26 and 26. I was making 10 and 10. Um Joe Lozon was making like 40 and 40. I was making 12 and 12. Ugh. Melvin Gallard was making 46 and 46. I was making 12 and 12. And then when it came time to renegotiate, they bumped me up to 15 and 15. I'm like, well, I beat, I beat the, I beat Melvin Gallard, who's making 46 and 46. You know, I was beating the shit out of Lozon. And with a real training camp, you know, I'd beat him. I'm on the same level as these guys. I should be getting 40 and 40 minimum. Nope. You don't like it. Sit for two years. And, uh, Wait for your contract to expire. Was was this when Ken Pavia was managing you? Ken Pavia never managed me. That was Mike. Uh, Mike Constantino was was managing me during that time. Yeah, no, the, the, the UFC is a wall. We have a lot of stories, you know, very similar. You know, a guy that you think, wow, they had to take care of that guy. Stefan Bonner said the same thing when his con- when his famous UFC contract, you know, the one you win from the uh, Ultimate Fighter, was up. You know, them three grand more on, on on the tip end. You know what I mean? It's like they've been consistently, you know. I don't know. Here, Miguel, Miguel, let me really wrap it up with what you're saying. In 2014, the first time we ever hear about a fighters' union is out of Jamie's mouth. Yeah, man. I mean, that was. I was a fucking world champion, and I was making less than guys that had never even like been top five. You know, I was making less than guys that never even 
gotten close to a world title. And I had all these fucking fight of the nights. I had all these great performances against tough dudes. Like, yet they just knew that they could take advantage of me, man. And it, um, my, my management was fucking weak. They, they, they were, they were chicken hearted cowards and, um, they really didn't fight for me. They cared more so about their relationship with the, with the UFC than they did with their fighters and actually caring about the best interests of their fighters. And it was like, you know, take it or leave it. And, oh, and they would always, they would only renegotiate. They, they would renegotiate right before your last fight. So then they could, they would do that strategically. So that way, if you didn't accept their contract, they would sit you out or they would put you against an absolute fucking hammer to try and get you to go out on a loss. So you couldn't go get some money from another, uh, from another like company, which we saw with Nate Diaz. They tried doing that to Nate. It's just, it's their MO, man. They, again, they're fucking assholes and they're terrible fucking business people, but I understand it, but they give us an opportunity. So it's like, it's a deal with the devil when you're working with the UFC. Jesus. Yeah, was it LG Sports Marketing? Is that who you were with? LG, that I think that was Jason. Yeah, that was Lally and Janae. That was uh, 2000. Okay. That was 2006 to about 2010. My my fight with Benson was my last fight under them. So, um, but under you that worked team. out with Benson before for a while before you guys fought. Was yeah. Was yeah, that kind I of a the, forced issue? I beat the shit out of Ben. Ben and Efren Escudero would do round robins on me, and I wouldn't lose a round. I would do five, six rounds in a row with both of them round robin on me, and they wouldn't win a round. I think the, the only round I ever lost to Ben was the third or second or third round of that fight with him. That was the only round I ever lost to Ben sparring or anything. Great training partner, good athlete, but I was just I, – I, I, I was definitely – I was better. And, um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know, man. But Mike, I'm going to do something a little unusual here. I'm going to knock us back a little bit, see if I can get us back on track. Because we talked extensively about the Hermes Franca loss. And then you got, a, you know, a call back to the UFC coming off a loss, which was a – so right around here, you're pretty good. But then oh, – but, but yeah, there's seven months. There's seven months in between. Right, no, no, but, but they bring them back. But my question is, is how do you go from the UFC to the WEC? Like, what was that – conversation what was how will you transition there yeah that's that's a great question um so the ufc had just acquired all those organizations right pride wfa wec um they they bought those organizations for their contracts so what what had happened was they had a deal with comcast and versus so they what they did was they consolidated all the the big time guys all the heavier weights into the UFC and then they created this, they created the WC to be centered around more lightweight. Yeah. So what the conversation was, cause I beat Jason Gilliam. I fought Jason Gilliam for three and three. After I beat him, my contract went up to five and five. So whoever I was going to fight next was going to be for five and five. Um, they, they acquired the WEC and they contacted me. They contacted the Lallies and like, Hey, we want to really build up the WEC um, we like Jamie. He's young. Uh, I was 22 at the time. Uh, we'll guarantee him all his fights on TV. We'll give him a pay bump. They gave me a $5,000 bonus and they bumped me up to seven and seven. 
And if he wins his first fight, we'll get him a title shot. So it was kind of like a no brainer, right? I was going to make more money. I was guaranteed to be on TV. Um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't the UFC, but you know, at that time, like I wanted the money, it was an opportunity to become a world champion. Um, and yeah, like that's, that's why I took it. And ultimately the WEC guys ended up being the better fighters anyways, because when they merged us over, Ben Henderson immediately became a world champion. Then after that, I mean, you know, Anthony Pettis, then Ben Henderson, like, you know, those, those guys ended up dominating. And it was like the WEC guys that just dominated the UFC. So the WC was much more competitive, I think, in the lightweight division. You had, you know, oh, sure. BJ Penn, you had Sean Trigg, you had your couple outliers, but for the most part, the WEC was a much more competitive lightweight division. So you beat a guy coming off the tap out reality show in um, Sharon Leggett, one of Dave Strasser's guys. You knock him out in 408. Sharon Leggett is a very gritty, hard fighter. And that finish in the first round, like here in the Midwest, I was getting phone calls like, dude, first round finish against a guy that, you know, we, we figured you'd beat him, but a finish and beating somebody are two completely different things. Yeah, man. I mean, I was just, I was really good then. Like that was when I was like really kind of coming into my own, coming to my peak. That's what our team had just been formed. So I had a really good like schedule routine as far as training. I had amazing coaching. We had, I had division one, all Americans as my, my training partners, as well as my coaches. Then I had world champion jujitsu coach doing all my grappling doing all my jujitsu. And I had a lot of high-level jiu-jitsu competitors, Steve Rosenberg, a lot of these guys are uh, – Jacob McClintock, a lot of these guys are high-level world champ, Pan-American champions in jiu-jitsu. So I had them to work out with. And then I had the Steinbeiss brothers and, like, pro boxers, pro kickboxers that would come in and work out with me, uh, Ryan Diaz. Like, I, I had a lot of opportunity. So we, we created this amazing team. And so, like, unfortunately, like, I was just fucking good. I mean, I, I had the, I had the right coaching. I had the right people around me to make me better. That were good for my mind. Like, like having Bader and Simpson and Gustavo and Ryan Diaz and some of these guys like around, like they were, they were able to counterbalance the negativity from the lallies. So I was just feeling good about myself. I was very confident going to fights. Obviously I was, I would be scared to lose, get scared. I'd be scared yeah. to get embarrassed. You know, like that fear of failure was always there, but that fear of fa failure also is what motivated me. But um, that Sharon Leggett fight, man, dude, I was very confident I was going to smoke that dude. <laughs> and um, I was just on a different level, man. Um, and I like his best was his best thing was wrestling. I knew that I was a better wrestler. No one really no one really had seen my striking um, and I didn't really get a chance to showcase it there. But I did kind of I kicked him in the head. Uh, I was just a better wrestler, and uh, he just he he wasn't ready for the smoke. Well, he, he also he also okay. accumulated I think a ten or twelve fight record under the name of Rob Roy before I think Sure Dog cleaned that up and com, 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 and uh, combined <laughs> them. But uh, he had a he had an alternate ego that also fought on on yeah. show. <laughs> oh man! I, but look, here's the thing: you walk into a title fight against. An elite striker in Rob Nicola in the WEC, February 13, 2008. And you were such an underdog that most betting parlors would not take action on it. Really? Yes. Damn, I'd never heard that. 
that's the first time hearing that. Dude, yeah. you were a heavy underdog. Years. You didn't know you were underdog going into that fight? I, I mean, I knew I was an under. I was I, I, I was an underdog in most of my fights, I think. Most of your fights, um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, well, he was a world champion. He just knocked out um, – who did he just knock out? He just knocked out somebody really tough, a friend uh, – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had just knocked him out. Um, and, like, dude, that guy was really tough. He was one of Hermes Franca's guys. Uh, yeah, what, what was his last name again? Franklin? Razor Rob McCullough. No, no, no. I know. Crunkleton? Yeah, Rich Crunkleton. Yeah. Crunkleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a nice guy too, man. He was great. Um, I saw him around the WC a lot. But, yeah, I mean, going into that fight with with uh, Razor was pretty contentious, right? He's He's got that Huntington Beach bad boy fucking team arrogance. Yeah. yeah, and you know he's got that look, and he's yeah. a handsome dude, tatted up, you know, dating all the porn stars, and uh, you no, know, like knocking people out. And uh, I was, I was a big fan of the Team Punishment guys back in the day, Tito Ortiz, Tiki, Razor Rob, back when they were fighting in King of the Cage, and and some of those like some of those other organizations. I, I used to get a bunch of the uh, King of the Cage like VHS tapes. And I'd watch them. I, I would just study film. I, I was pretty obsessed with the MMA. So I'd watch a lot of them. And so those guys, I was fans of those guys. So it's like I went from, you know, I was 22 years old. I think, yeah, 22, 23 years old going into that fight. And I was fighting a guy that I looked up to, like, earlier in my career. But um, one, of the, one of the most beautiful things that kind of came out of that fight is fighting Razor Rob forced me to stand up. He was so good at wall walking and like defense, like getting getting out from you know getting up from the ground and wrestling defense. That that first round, I took him down a few times and I I about gassed myself out. I remember I go I went into the corner after that first round and I just had my I had my 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 arms are on my knees, my head is down, and my coach goes, Lally, Trevor, one of the most beautiful moments, man. I still remember this. He goes head to head with me. And he's really calmly say, hey, Jamie, we got to box him. We got to box him. We can't take him down anymore. We got to box him. You you have to box him. Just trust your striking. You can you can do this. You got to box him. And sure enough, dude, I went out there that second round and I I started hitting him. And I was like putting combinations together and I was seeing his punches and I was slipping and moving. I'm like, holy shit, I can do this. And then we go into the third round and I I was able to like, it was so, I was so dejected, broken. Like I was really fucking tired after that first round. And then I got, I went through that, that second round and the, the striking pace is so much different than the wrestling pace. And it's, it's a lot more, it was a lot more efficient. Like I wasn't burning as many calories or as much energy. So I went in after that second round, I went back to my corner and I was like, a lot more refreshed. So going into that third round, like it was almost like I had a round off because again, like not doing all the wrestling and the scrambling and having to pick them up and all the stuff, like I'm just throwing punches and moving punches and moving. And then the third round, like I just, I put a cross hook cross together and um, it was lights out. And then after, like after that fight, I was like, I'm good. I can stand up with these guys. Now I believed in myself. I didn't have belief in my striking before that fight. Because I never really had to. I was never forced to use it. I could always out-wrestle people. But that fight, he forced me to stand up. And that was a pivotal point in my life, in my career, where I'm like, now I'm a dual threat. Or the triple threat. You know, we get we get to the ground. I can submit you there. 
I could out wrestle most guys and then out striking. Now I, I'm knocking people out striking. I'm beating, you know, professional kickboxers at striking. Like now that's, I think that's what put people on notice for sure was the way I beat him. Well, McCullough too, it was, uh, it was like in that second round, he's like, what, what is this? Wait, I didn't prepare for this. It was, he, he saw his frustration. Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. What are we doing here? Yeah. You adjusted. Yeah. He didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but he didn't like, I, I mean, he really didn't have to, right? Like I, I, I went right into his game, right. His, his ideally for him was to, was to strike, right. Mm -hmm. That that would be ideal. What wasn't ideal was being on his back, getting mauled by me. And he trained well to not have that happen. Um, I, I just don't think people realized my athleticism or my, my striking ability because they never seen it. Underestimated. Yeah, no one ever seen it, dude. There wasn't tape of me. There was zero tape of me out there going fucking going to war with people on, on the feet. So there was nothing. They, they had nothing to prepare for striking wise. Now, how you, you mentioned, obviously, that you didn't feel a lot of love for the UFC. You know, at this point, some of that came later. But did you feel love for the WEC now? You got success. They're kind yeah, of Reed Harris. Like, you're looking like a poster boy kind of guy. Like, did you ever feel that from them? Uriah Faber was the poster boy. They shit on me, too. The, that no fear energy. That no fear energy. Dude, I was racing motocross, like, riding dirt bikes, like, doing all sorts of fucking crazy shit back then. Um, and they, they, they just, every single promotional dollar, every single opportunity that the WEC got, whether it was Bud Light or Amp Energy or No Fear, Everything went to Uriah. Everything went through Uriah or Miguel Torres for the, the they they were really making a push for the Latin for the Latin fighters with Bud Light. So like the Latin guys got got the Bud Light money and Uriah Faber got all the uh, no fear or amp energy money. They didn't do fucking shit for me. Didn't do shit after I beat um fuck um really? the fight. The the fight after the fight after uh, McCall Cowboy, no, no. Oh, here you got Marcus Hicks. Yeah, Marcus then... Hicks. Yeah, so okay. Mark the Marcus Hicks fight. After that fight, so I I just demolished that dude. Like he was yeah. like finishing dude, everybody. Dude, wait, wait, hold up, James. Dude, Marcus Hicks is a stud stand up guy, and your footwork, <sighs> ladies and gentlemen, I suggest you watch that fight. Go ahead. Yeah, man. Like he was, he was very tough. He was a pro boxer. He used to be a heavyweight, I think. He was a black belt in jujitsu. He, he, if you got a hold of your neck or your leg, you're either getting guillotined or you're getting an ankle lock, um, or he would knock you out on the feet. Like he was a very scary opponent. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just, I, he was a southpaw. I had to beat his foot. And, um, one thing I learned, and I, I, I learned it by accident. Um, one of my training partners were working on just like setting up, setting up the kick to the body, my, my, my left kick to the body, my, my, my 10, my right leg, and just setting it up off the lead hand, slapping, faking a jab, slapping that lead hand, kicking. And I, I got it. I, I hit him with a body. I got him with a body kick and that fucking, that crippled him. He could yeah. not take a body. He, Marcus six could not take a body shot. And so after I hit him with that, I need him and I need him a couple times. And then it was all she wrote, but after that fight, Reed Harris comes into the ring. You're a fucking badass, man. You're a fucking badass. You're so great. You're so tough. Then when it came to the contract negotiation, 
I'm still making half as much as Uriah Faber. Like, it's terrible. It's they terrible. Fuck it. Fuck those motherfuckers, man. They after I beat after I beat uh, Razor Rob, they I was I made nine and nine to fight Razor Rob. I think they bumped me up to fifteen and fifteen after that. Um, so after beating Razor Rob, I went to seventeen and seventeen. I fought um, I fought Marcus Six for seventeen seventeen. Uriah Faber made, I think he was like 40 and 40, 40 36 40. and 30. Yeah. yeah. Right 36 there. and 30. Yeah. So plus sponsors though. Like he was monster energy drink. He was everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He got, he got sponsor money that the, that the WEC was getting like, so the WEC yeah. had a choice to give money to other people. They always give to, they only give it to him. And, and Marcus Hicks for the record, he fought his last career fight. He took Kamaru Usman the distance, you know, 10 minutes, the full fight. So you you finished him in two minutes, and Kamaru Usman <laughs> went the distance with him. So, you know. Damn, guys. You guys really did some research. With, Shit. You know, the, thing about you, the, the thing is, is, you know, if people don't know you, you you, you, you come across, you know, is he confident or is he overconfident? I, I'm just making it clear that you're not overconfident, that this is no. well-placed confidence that you have in your in your skills because you were totally – in the conversation, underappreciated. You, know, these- you were underappreciated. Yes. Yeah. For sure. But I mean, like, again, you know, looking back on it now, I'm 38 years old. It's like, it was such a great opportunity, though. Like, every every job I've had, and I'm working for an amazing company now. I They, they pay, like, the money I'm making now is way more money than I ever made fighting. And, but because of my history with the UFC and WEC and these these fights that I've had, these doors have been opened for me that otherwise wouldn't have been opened. So you know what? Like maybe maybe all my money and all that credit or you know all that value that I thought I brought in the beginning, maybe it's just backloaded, man. Maybe I'm maybe it's just you know how life works. Like, you know, maybe in the beginning it was more of a struggle, but through you know, without struggle there can be no progress, right? So I just I think everything in my life is gonna is is more so you know um, backloaded than it was up front. Now, before we we end with Donald Cerrone, speaking of research, Pima Community College, you wrestled there. Did you ever get in a fist fight with Sunnyside head coach Tony Leon? I slapped him once. <laughs> <laughs> he says I punched him. I slapped him, um, uh, and I, I I was completely wrong. And coach sent me home from practice and um, I apologized to him. I, he still says I punched him. If I would have punched him, he would have went to sleep. I slapped him. Um, <laughs> I was, a, I was being a little bitch. I was a little bitch in the wrestling room. I think he took me down or something. I got upset. And uh, I think he's like, I think he called me a bitch. He's like, stop being a bitch. And I went, damn, there's a bitch for you. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but Tony, Tony's a great guy. And then that impact that Tony is making over at, at Sunnyside and yes. the, the, the lives that he's changing for some of those, those young men and women, dude, he is the, the impact that he is making in that community is, is like, you, you can't calculate it. And I would be surprised if when, when he, when he passes away, 
in fucking when he's 105 years old or whatever. I, I bet you the funeral procession will probably be 10 miles long for him. That's the impact that that guy makes. So that's what everybody um, says behind behind that guy's back. They're just saying we can't believe how much he's giving back to the community and whatever issue you guys had. That's wrestling. That's yeah, that is well, what it is. How yeah. old were you when that happened? You were young, right? Can we blame Drew Finger for this? We can blame Drew Finger, right? We can, yeah, we can blame Drew. <laughs> Drew was Drew was his private coach yeah. growing up. So Drew and I had that connection. But yeah, Anthony, yeah, Anthony, he was my my sophomore year at, at Pima. He was my main drill partner. He was my he was my best friend, my drill partner. You know, like when you know lovers quarrel, right? Like when when you're doing it's all wrestling. this shit. Yeah, you're doing all this shit, like tempers, whatever, egos. But um, he he was a major part of my success. And what at the, we went to the Cal Poly Open, and uh, he dislocated his elbow. And I was bawling. I was bawling right by his side, like, because I knew his season was over. And I lost my training partner. And it really sucked, dude. It really set me back not having Tony Leone as a training partner. Luckily... Um, there were a couple guys. There was a guy from Wabonzi uh, Community College out in uh, Illinois. He yeah. Mark Mark Vajovic. He came out to Pima, and, and he was a high level grappler. Um, he he came out and trained with me. He was a good partner. Then Travis DeGrout, who he was a professional MMA fighter out of New Mexico and state champion out of New Mexico. He actually came in um, the second semester to help help train with me and and be a drill partner. So. I mean, Anthony had some really big shoes to fill, and they had – my coach was awesome. He was able to find a couple guys, luckily, that could come in and help drill with me that could keep up a little bit. But, um, yeah, losing Anthony was was huge, and that that situation in the wrestling room was really unfortunate. But um, I love that dude. guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love him, and I, I yeah. we, we moved on past it. But it's – I wish I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Well, here, let's, let's close with Donald Cerrone. Uh, you get five months in between fights, January 25th, 2009. Um, cowboy, a uh, lot of trash talk pre-fight. Um, once again, you came in as an underdog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a lot of hype coming off that uh, tap-out show, right? And, uh, dude, he was a badass kickboxer, right? Professional kickboxer. Yep. And he was a jiu-jitsu guy that could, could, that could submit people. He had the gimmick, right? The cowboy hat and you know, the song and all the shit like he, he, dude, he was, he was dialed in. And that was, um, that was a tough fight. Uh, Donald, Donald's probably Donald by far is the toughest guy I've ever fought. I broke my hand. I broke my foot. I got a lesion in my right eye. Um, I, I was pissing like my, my, my piss was like dark Brown after that fight. Um, I spent, spent, I don't know, six hours in the hospital to get like try to see the bones of my here was right where this knuckle is. So this, this metacarpal was sticking straight up. And so, yeah, my, my whole hand, this whole top part of my hand was backward. This whole thing got like back. It was crazy. So they had to reset it, cast me up. Then my left foot was broke because I, I broke my, my right hand in the first round. I, I missed his head and I hit the mat. And I just felt something in my, I felt something in my hand, like something wasn't right, but I, I was able to, I still kept punching with it. Cause I was like, uh, I guess my body was in shock or you know the adrenaline, whatever. I wasn't, I, I didn't really notice it until like the second round. And then like, it really started hurting in the third round. So I had to kind of change up my game plan. That's when I started like going kicks and stuff. And I kicked them in the head with my left foot and I broke my left foot 
uh, I broke uh, two of the metacarpals on my left foot on his head. And yeah, then like the, the last round of the fight, it was like, fuck, I just, I got to wrestle this guy. I, I had, I had a broken hand. I had a broken foot. I'm like, I, I got one more round and he was taking every shot I threw at him, man. He could just, he, I was hitting him so fucking hard. Um, hindsight being 2020, um, he can't take a body shot. I never once went to the body. I wanted to knock his ass out. But again, hindsight being 2020, if I could do it all over again, even the, the second fight all over again, I'd just go to the body. Like I would, I'd go to the body on that guy. Um, I think that was, that, that's what really hurt him. And I'm surprised more people didn't go after his body once they saw what Anthony Pettis did to him. And I think somebody else kicked him in the body and he just crumbled. So yeah. Anyways, he, he's tough, dude. Great guy. We're, uh, we're, we're friends. Um, we've, we've made our, we made our piece and you know, on, on Instagram, I'll comment on some of his shit. He'll comment, he'll comment back. So yeah, we're cool now. And, uh, I'd love to grab a beer with that guy someday. Just kind of talk about what the fuck was going through his mind. Why didn't you like me? <laughs> yeah, you, you, know, uh, you, you, it was funny after you beat him, you said, Hey man, I'd like to publicly apologize for the free fight, you know, trash talk. And then you said, I, I don't like him as a person, but as a fighter, I really respect him. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah, no, he's, he's a good dude, man. And like, he's a fighter's fighter. That guy is a hall of famer. He's a legend. Um, I'm really happy for him that he's, uh, he's two beautiful boys, right? Two kids. One, he's one, I know what danger or something is one of them. Um, he, he looks like he's in great, but I just saw, he posted a video on uh, Instagram recently. He looks about 185 Jack. Um, he's doing all these movies. I saw him on the, in the list on the last episode of the terminal list. Um, that, that car, the Jaguar series, Are you guys familiar with that on Amazon? I've seen it. I've seen it. You're better to watch it. Yeah. Yeah, he's but he's in that and he's doing he's doing movies and shit now. I'm I'm really happy for that guy. I um I was curious. I was really worried to be honest with you, not to like say I'm above him or anything, but I was like really worried. Like, what does this guy have without fighting? Like, he's not he's not obviously not the most articulate, most intelligent. Um, I I and clearly he wasn't business savvy with the the tax trouble that he got in, never paying his taxes. So. Uh, I was I was worried, like, what the fuck is this guy going to do with his life after fighting? And I'm just really happy that he's got his ranch. He's got his people. He's he's playing the role as a mentor to, to fighters. But then also he's doing movies. And I, I'm just I'm really happy for that guy, because like I said, I was worried. I was like and I feel like that worry is probably you guys could probably agree with that worry. Like, yeah. can you see Donald Cerrone going in? I don't know, running a gym. Can you see him going and doing medical sales? Can you see him as a like I, I, I just. I couldn't because I just didn't know if he was if he was capable of that stuff. But yeah, man, he he found his thing, he found his groove, and I'm really really proud of him. Did, did you ever make up with Brian Caraway? I know you guys hit a rivalry for a minute. He's a douchebag too. Him and Misha Tate both. I hate Misha too. Misha's a scumbag. Misha is such a shitty human. I don't know why people like her, and Brian's a douchebag too. They came and trained with us over at the lab. And John Crouch, I mean, you should definitely, you should talk to John Crouch about Misha Tate and uh, Brian Caraway. They were the most disrespectful motherfuckers on the planet. That's why, like, anytime I see shit with Misha on it, I always, I like, I will go out of my way to make sure that she knows that I, that I know what a piece of shit she is. Um, She would, her and Brian, they, her, Brian, and, a couple of the other guys, Mike uh, Kiesa, um, 
what was the other the bald guy that's Sam something or other Sam that that hangs out with uh, Kiesa? He fought the UFC baller bald guy. He's he's friends mm-hmm. with Mike Kiesa. They train together in the Pacific Northwest. You guys definitely fought in the UFC. Um, I'll look him anyways. up. Keep going. I'll look him up. Yeah, he, he's Mike. Mike Kiesa is one of Mike Kiesa's train partners. I think he fights a forty-five uh, bald guy. Anyways, doesn't matter. So. Brian Caraway and Misha Tate, like during like the class, like when when John Crouch would be teaching technique, they would just go and do their own thing. Like they would they wouldn't pay attention. They wouldn't like do anything that we were doing. They would just go and do their own thing. It was just so goddamn disrespectful. And like John Crouch would be coaching and teaching stuff. They'd be talking and doing their own thing. They wouldn't spar with certain people. They like they wouldn't do anything that all of us were doing. And um then when it came time to like get cornered and pay, she didn't pay John Crouch what she owed him. Uh, she's just a shitty fucking human, dude. So disrespectful. Oh man, yeah. I and Brian Caraway, they're just they're birds of the same feather. They're just shitty humans. For them, Burchek, they're they all got a special place in fucking hell because they suck. <laughs> dude, I'm gonna be honest with you. Fickett told us. Varner's going to be a good interview, bro. He's going to be good. <laughs> he recommended really? you, and he also recommended Seth uh, uh, the the Polish Pistola. Yeah. He's, Seth is a funny fucker. Did, he, did yeah. he give you guys some good anecdotes and funny stories and weird quips yeah. that he has? Yeah, yes. he's fucking funny. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. I got your little fist fight in high in uh, <laughs> junior college for Drew. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, uh, George Root? Have you guys talked to him at all? Not yet. No, he's on our short list, though. He's supposed to be real no, good. I would, love, I would love to talk to that guy. That'd be great. George, he's got a very unique story. He's very successful right now. He got into the medical marijuana. Um, and so I think he's doing dispensaries or grow houses. But talk about a, a guy that was a grinder. Like, he didn't have a lot of opportunity. He was somebody that was never really appreciated, but he beat some big names. I think yeah. um, I think he'd be a, I think he'd be a great interview. And I really like I respect that guy so much. Um, he, he's just such a good dude. I, I think he would be a great interview. Um, and then if you guys ever get a chance, um, there is Jesse Morang. Jesse Morang has a very interesting story. The guy that I lost to. I mean, he fought in the yes. WEC. I know he's not the biggest name you guys have ever heard of or whatever, but he's got a, he's got a pretty good story. He was a business owner, a dad, doing all these things, but yet fighting at such an elite level. So, yeah, I don't know. Just a couple guys for your radar. Awesome. Yeah, no, Jamie. Well, I'm gonna be in touch to get to get a hold of George Root for sure. For sure. Okay. Do it, man. Do Maybe it. He's on Instagram. Took us a minute to pull this thing together. You came through, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All right, guys. Have a great day and thank you. Michael, another deep dive. I think Chris is gonna be proud of us. Keeping it going here. And uh Jamie Varner's in the books. Man, what a fantastic interview, huh? Yeah, you know, the guys, you know. I, I I leave these interviews really happy when I get a guy like him that has moved on and seems to be, you know, in another phase of his life where he's happy and stuff. He's still obviously on top of the game with martial arts. He's a martial artist and stuff. But like he said, he's in he's, he's, he's working, he's content, and it doesn't look like a tragic ending. And he's a guy that you know, it was always the B-side, maybe with some A-side. A maybe at some point he had A-side talent. 
and he was always the B side. So the East yeah. guy could have been bitter and not and left the sport with uh with some bitterness. And he didn't have that. You know, it's interesting. A lot of these younger guys, you know, I everybody everybody's younger than me now, but you know, these younger guys have managed to get good perspectives on on their careers. Like, you know, I, I did it, I didn't make, you know. Chuck Liddell money or anything like that. I, you know, many, I'm sure a lot of them think that they should have, they deserve more. There's lawsuits that say they deserve more. Right. So there's room for bitterness and these guys aren't bitter. You know, they moved Joe Stevenson, um, Ian McCall, uh, you know, Jamie Varner is another one of those guys, just positive, moved on. Didn't really want to dwell on much negative stuff like that, but still gave a great interview. Look, you know, and Jamie, with respect, brother, thank you, you know, for from the heart. We had him crying at some point, and, you know, I, I got a checklist. Jamie, ain't the first one. You ain't going to be the last one. So thank you, man. Thank no. you, Steph. Thanks for a good interview. Yeah, do you know, uh, we we obviously, we talk about tragedies in the ring, <clears throat> you know, occasionally when they come up. But there's also tragedies in the gym that um, – mostly go unnoticed or untalked about like we did with Sammy Schultz, you know, before his historic, um, you know, K1, uh, before his historic K1 run. And I shouldn't say before it was during it <clears throat> with one of his training partners dying in his arms. And, you know, we had another one and um, it's pretty important to me that those guys get at least a little shine or, or what they deserve. And, you know, if it means just a little two or three minutes on this podcast, well, you know, it's mission accomplished in my opinion. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, we try to be classy about these things. And yeah. I like to bring it up in this way. I hate to be vulgar about it, but if that stuff comes up live, like, hey, the guy's going into a fight, but like he's got a training partner that passed away or he's got family issues or anything like that. All that affects betting and lines and things like that. All that's information that's out there. So these guys try to keep that hidden and you never know, you know what I mean? And uh, I, you know, someone like with that type of bag, it shouldn't be asked to fight. I, that's just, you know, they need some time to assimilate things. And well, uh, Jamie, well, didn't didn't. That, Jamie didn't get that respect. And that's really unfair. Well, well, you know, let, let, let's compound it. Like, that's just one aspect of it. There's fighters that go in about completely injured. You talked about betting lines. They go in completely injured because if they have to take a year off, they're screwed. They got no money in the bank. Like, the, that UFC check, even if it's just show money, is something that carries them for the year or six, seven, eight months. And if they're at the end of the money that they had on their last fight and they're going in with a foot injury – They've got no choice but to fight her, you know, because insurance isn't going to cover it. So it's either <clears throat> career ending injury or they have to go in with it. <clears throat> and, you know, like you said, this isn't a physical injury, but it is a mental one. And um, I mean, it still bothers them today. So it tells you how serious it was. The, the, the thing is, we have a tendency and this is something for, you know, the sport to take notice to. A broken leg is obvious, but we yeah. ignore a damaged, you know, whatever brain, yeah, yeah, mind, whatever it is. We ignore that. We tend to even give people a little leeway. Oh, it's like, ah, oh, you know, he's had a lot of fights. He's still doing good. You know, he's fine for a lot of fights. It's like, man, you you see signs of people, you know, 
suffering CTE and mental, you know, declines from this sport too. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, uh, Jamie was really together. He's still a young man. He's still got it all together. So I, I'm not even sure how we wound up on that end of the subject, except for that the UFC is not paying their guys enough and that people are wor worrying about it, uh, about their health and stuff and, and willing to commit fraud. Because that's I, at the end of the day, I think that's legally how that could play out is yeah. if you sign the contract without the intent to fulfill it somehow, then, you know, and, and that's in the neighborhood that they're in then they should be questioning some of their pay scale. They're, they're really aloof when it comes. And then when you, like you said, when CTE comes into mind, the, the, the UFC doesn't even, you know, bring that subject up. No, no. So Miguel, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening right here, we need you to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you don't, you are a POS, I think is what the, uh, the three letters are. Uh, we need you to do that. It helps us grow. Um, Miguel, any shout outs you want to give? I think Fred Hammer definitely deserves one. Obviously, Fred is a longtime fan of the podcast, but uh, you know, he's he stepped up and he, he's he actually uh did, did some work and did us a favor, cranked out a couple of t shirts. We got a couple of t shirts in the mail. Um, if they're not in the mail yet or you haven't gotten them, you should be getting them sometime here. Um, we got Crowbar, we got Genghis Conrad, we got our usual suspects that we always thank. Gen uh, Crowbar, we're working on different sizes, so you, you're you're on the next list of T-shirts. But other than that, <laughs> Freddie, Freddie got us a, a couple of T-shirts that we'll be able to get out there. So um, some of the hardcore guys, email us your addresses and stuff, and Michael, we'll make Mike package some, some things. I'll handle it. I'll handle yeah. it. Awesome. Well, he, Ladies and gentlemen. Not ladies, because I don't think we've got a single female listener. Gentlemen, please do us a favor, like, share, subscribe. It only helps us. You know what I mean? It's, you know, we see a, a big bump, like in Toronto. We've got a bunch of people in Toronto listening now. Like, it, it actually took over our number one city. They passed Australia. I mean, they came out of nowhere. So I think we've got, you know, about a half dozen more fans there. Um, greatly, greatly appreciated. And uh, another thing we busted out recently, actually, is shorts. So we're now on our YouTube channel, we got, like, one-minute clips. And I don't know if, if everybody, you know, if every single interview is for everybody, but it's a real good way to get, like, a one-minute listen to a bunch of our older interviews and stuff and, you know, get involved in some of the stories and see if you go out there and, and listen to some of them. Because I think <clears> that the shorts have uh, had their impact. Like, uh, we put up a short from our recent Pedro Sauer interview where he talked about Eric Paulson and Mike calls me up. He goes, what'd you do? Eric Paulson, you know, got some absurd number of downloads in one day. Like, in, you know, his, his podcast is older, so we don't usually see that, but it helps it out. It helps us spread them, you know, share the, the shorts and stuff like that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. We'd like to break through with those. I see those are the high traffic ones and we haven't had one break a thousand <clears> hits yet. So I'd like to see us hit a thousand on some of them first. And then go from there. So yeah, so Miguel, out there. Wait. Also, I think we're going to be combining our YouTube channels. We've got a clips channel and a long form channel. I think we're going to go all long form channel. Maybe just two clips. You know, like three to five minute clips per episode, along with shorts. And we're going to put everything there, including the ADCC stuff. 
Um, you know, we've got a lights out. What is it? The conspiracy, like MMA conspiracy hour. That's with Todd Atkins. It's a completely separate channel. If you're looking for like topical MMA stuff, we usually hit home runs there all day long. Um, so we, we got a lot going on, but we're going to, we're going to kind of get a little slim on, on YouTube and keep it to one area rather than two. Yeah. The, the clips channel, you'll see slowly the Abu Dhabi history, the, uh, tragedies. The, there's been a couple of different like story types that we've been putting up there and we'll slowly migrate them over in the next month or so. We should get everything moved over and be a little more trim and hopefully that'll make it easier for everybody to find stuff. And things. So, Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.